a Superman action figure in a toy coffin, a blue shirt and red jacket, a first flight in the sun above the Arctic tundra. These are some of the moments that define my Superman fandom. Together on this podcast, we journey across time and media to examine, discover, and reconsider the creative visions that have shaped the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Superman in the Silver Age is returning guest and my dear friend, Rich Roney. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and I'm really looking forward to, I'm eager for this discussion. Yes, you more than any guest for any of my various podcasts, with you, we have more discussions about what we're going to talk about in advance of and more recaps after the episode <laughs> than any other guest. But, you know, I treasure I treasure all of the conversations, the one that we record that everyone can can hear or watch, but also all the prep that we do and the postmortem afterward. Uh, I really I, I, I genuinely enjoy and treasure all of those chats. Echo that echo that. So last episode, of course, we covered the Golden Age, and here we are now uh, talking about Superman in the Silver Age, um, typically defined uh, as the period from uh, about 1956 to 1970 or thereabouts. Is that your general you know, understanding of, of what's considered the Silver Age? Yes, yes, uh, though I would put a small caveat for Superman. I absolutely agree with the... Uh the time frame, but for Superman, I think the Silver Age for Superman started in 1958. Yes, with, and we're going to talk, so we're obviously going to be talking about the era generally, and we also have specific stories that we're going to be touching on, but the first official story on our list is uh, Action Comics 241, the super key to Fort Superman from 1958, considered by many to be the official start of the Silver Age for Superman. So the Silver Age might have started a couple of years earlier, but it didn't really get to Superman <laughs> until 1958. And, you know, I just to do a tiny bit of cleanup from the last episode and segue into this episode, and I know this is something that you and I have touched on in our private conversations, uh, with Superman in particular, do you agree there's a bit of a nebulous period from like the end of the 40s um, into the early to mid 50s, right, that yeah. didn't quite f totally fit into golden or silver? Very much so. Yes, yes. It's yes. If 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 I had to be a diamond cutter and precisely do it, it's not possible. It, uh, you know, where the Earth Two Superman stopped and the Earth One Superman started, it is very nebulous. Almost, I would say, from nineteen forty nine to again, probably nineteen fifty eight. The stories. The stories were done in one, but they really didn't fit in, in into the Golden Age nor the Silver Age. Yeah, well, interestingly, you know, of course, you were on the show a while back and we did a pair of epic discussions on the George Reeves TV series. And it seems from, you know, the the reading about Superman and the Silver Age that I've done that, you know, uh, that, that TV series uh, really had a pronounced effect on the comics at the time and that there really was an effort to keep the, the TV show and the comics in sync. So a lot of the stories, and we talked about that in, in those episodes that we did, where there were a number of stories that you could read in comic book form yep. and also watch on television. So it seems like the, you know, the, the television show definitely had a major influence and then that ended 
right around the time that we're talking about here at the official start of Silver Age for Superman. Very much so. Yes, yes. I, I think 1958 was the final year the TV show was yep. uh, broadcast live. And, and yeah, there was almost a, a very thoughtful. Uh, I, remember, I remember on the, when we chatted about the George Reeves show, speaking that, uh, uh, I, forget, I forget who the major showrunner was, but Ellsworth, Whitney right. Ellsworth, and then Mort Weisinger. And they said at that time, they really didn't take planes. They took a train. Uh, out to Los Angeles, and they apparently uh, drafted or crafted or set up like 20-plus stories. And then I'm sure when when Mort Weisinger returned to New York, he figured, well, look, I'm, I did all this work. Why don't I turn it over to an artist? Exactly. Uh, so over the course of this episode, again, we'll be talking about what the Silver Age was like for Superman generally, We'll be talking about some specific stories. We'll be talking about some some publishing history. Uh, you shared some quite staggering sales figures with me, and we, we'll get into that as well. But I, I want to kind of start it on a personal note, because I, I think that's that's always the most interesting piece of this, right? And the show is called, you know, A Superman Fan Journey. And for you in particular, I know that Silver Age Superman played a, a pivotal role in your history as a Superman fan. I mean, that's the, there's a reason you're here for this episode. So, I mean, could you, just to give our, as much as I know a lot of this from all of our, our conversations, could you give our audience a little bit of context? I mean, you grew up reading Silver Age Superman, right? Yes, yes. Okay, so I'll try to keep it brief because um, you know I do have the ability to, to go protract the discussion. But real quickly for your, for your listeners, um, I just turned 65. I grew up in the very, very uh, thick of the 1960s. Um, I was a big fan. I got to see reruns of The Adventures of Superman with George Reeves. And I saw those first. And then when I was about seven or eight years old, I started noticing comics and especially the overlap, the intersection between the TV show and the uh, comic, especially with Superman, the character. As you know, the first first comic book I ever bought that's indelible in my in my memory is World's Finest one one forty three, where Superman and Batman team up. But I've always loved the uh, the Kurt Swan nineteen uh, sixties rendition of Superman. That that's far far and away my favorite. Gotcha. And as much as we're going to get into all of this as we move forward. Just to kind of tee this up for anyone who maybe hasn't really read much Silver Age Superman or maybe they haven't in a really long time. Big picture, what are the hallmarks of Superman stories set in the Silver Age? Like what when you think back even before this reread that we did in advance of, of this episode? I mean, again, what do you identify most either plot-wise, story-wise, uh, thematically, with Superman stories during this period of time. Okay. And, and you threw me a curveball. So uh, uh, I got so micro-focused. Let me back it up. But I would say, and, and I want you to step in for, if I miss anything, but most of these stories were definitely written for 10-year-olds. They were definitely done in one. There was no continuing stories, or they were very, very rare. So... It was done in one. Uh, Superman had almost an outrageous power set. He could juggle 
planets. So one of the challenges, uh, one of the hallmarks really is that there had to be a lot of stories where they created an environment where he was deprived of his powers and it showed his courage and his ingenuity. Uh, there were a lot of silly covers. I mean, the, the cover sold the story, so there'd be a gimmicky or a stunning cover to capture your interest. Um, done in one, but the, the, the status quo was always reset at the end. Um, and they certainly, between 1958 and 1970, really created a profound mythos where they, they incrementally added to the mythos periodically. And I think that kept the stories fresh until the end of the Silver Age. Uh, the other things, quickly, <laughs> there were a lot of stories that focused on, oh God, Red Kryptonite helped them out a lot. The rivalry between Lois Lane and Lana for Superman's love and affection and to whom they wanted to marry. Um, and a lot of stories where Clark had to preserve his secret identity. So the, the, spontaneously, I, that's the take. I, I agree, though I, I'm shocked you didn't say robots. I thought robots would have been one of the one of the top three things because that's certainly one of my takeaways from oh, from this little uh, reading assignment. <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry, Anthony. I am saving that <laughs> when we get when we when we get into the mythos, uh, and you you give me the hook because I can run at the mouth. But one thing I kind of want to say is 1958. I didn't know this till you had me. You engaged me for this discussion. So I started looking at stories more intensely. I started lining up creators with particular stories. And what stunned me, and I know we're going to talk about this, but in a real tight time frame in 1958, uh, there was that Action 241. There was Action 242. There was uh, the first Supergirl story. And then there was the first Legion of Superheroes. But I never knew this until this morning when I started syncing things up. Otto Binder wrote three of the four uh, foundational stories for the Silver Age. Al Plastino did the artwork. And those stories, you know, the action, 241, 242, Supergirl, the Legion, I really think they were the foundation. And when you look at those stories by themselves, they're not that powerful. But boy, did they build a foundation for the whole mythos you know, that evolved really over the next 12 years. So on that note, I have one more question on, on the personal side for you, because we had a phone call about a, a week or so ago where you had started your reading assignment for this episode and you called and you shared something that I guess I, I was kind of surprised and I, I was saddened to hear because, you know, the goal, hopefully, as we as we read or reread, you know, various stories is that hopefully they'll hold up. Uh, or that will, you know, we'll come to them, you know, fresh and enjoy them. But you, you had a bit of a different experience. Would you mind sharing what, because again, like we established, you grew up reading these stories. I know you came into this, this reading project and this episode with a lot of affinity, a lot of love for this time period. And what happened when you started reading these issues? Well, uh, let uh, let me tell your, your, your audience and your listeners, I did research this. I queried a number of websites like Comics Alliance and CBR. I Googled greatest Silver Age Superman stories. I Googled greatest Superman stories by decade. And to your listeners, uh, 
I proposed a list of, I think, about 15 or 17 or 18 stories, you know, that were in this time period. And these were the greatest stories by different websites and different uh, critics. I, I got to tell you, Anthony, even today, as I was writing up some of my notes to chat with you, I really feel demoralized. Some of these stories, sadly, much as I have phenomenal love, I'm just demoralized. They don't hold up well, right? And it kills me. It hurts me in my heart. I Some of these, I almost wish I had not reread because I, I would have like to have preserved the fonder memory. So now, now I, much as I'm hurt, I still got to salute the creators. I mean, some of the artwork is beautiful. Some of the, the constraints the writers had to deal with, um, what they were subjected to with the tenor of society in the times, I think oh, we're all constraints. So, um, so, but that being said, you're going to get the best out of me with my opinions and thoughts and perspectives. Uh, but I, I did some of these, I had a hard time. I mean, I even would read three or four pages and then just like throw it back on, on my desk and eh, go somewhere else. Um, I wanted to talk about this up front because I think this is an important piece in any fan journey, yours, mine, anyone's regardless of the character. And I think that for anyone watching or listening, even if, they don't have the exact same experience with Silver Age Superman. I'm sure there's something where, you know, you enjoy something as a kid. It really means a lot to you. And it, you know, it holds a special place for you in your mind and your heart and you build it up and you go back to it and, you know, it, it doesn't hold up. Maybe you question, why did I even like this in the first place? Actually, that is a question for you. Do you ask yourself that question or can you still see, okay, I get why I like this at the time. It's just that it doesn't still work for me. Was it, was it a little bit of that or did this, was this like completely shattered where, where you were wondering why did I even like this in the first place? Where did, where did you kind of land? Probably on the position that parts of it, I still have great love for and respect. Um, and truthfully, who knows, as I think this through, um, four or five years from now, I might reread one of these stories and have yet a different view. Uh, um, the other thing I got to say, and you know this, look, I read these stories 55, 55 years ago. The sensibilities and the life experiences I have now and also the evolution of writing. I mean, they can write stories where they let the characters breathe. So my tastes having evolved, the prowess of writing having evolved, the structure and cadence of stories I'm looking at these stories from 1962 or 1965 through the lens of the current world and more mature stories like Kingdom Come or uh, uh, some of the other Superman stories that are more adult, more thoughtful, more thought provocative. Uh, but some of these I will always love. I will always love. It's just that a few of them, um, and you're going to hear it. I'm going to be very critical when we start unpacking um, certain certain stories that are on our mutual list. You know, again, I, I understand and, you know, I've been fortunate so far for the most part with this podcast when I've been going back to something to reread or rewatch. For the most part, either it it holds up as well as I remembered it or in a lot of cases, I'm finding a new way to enjoy something. I'm enjoying it more than I ever did the first time. I'm appreciating it in a new way. 
Uh, I actually have a specific example that I'll share later in this episode. Uh, but that's not always the case. A little while back, I did an episode on the the Superman 2 movie, both the theatrical cut as well as the Richard Donner version of the movie. And, you know, that was a movie I, I grew up loving. And in my mind, it was always like, yeah, the first two Superman movies, like, they're great. You know, when I sat down and I watched both cuts of that movie and it did not hold up for me. There was a lot that I just really found off, at least in terms of what I want out of the Superman character and a Superman movie. And so, you know, there, it, it, it was sad. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't happy about that. It wasn't the sort of thing where I'm like, oh, I'm glad I see everything that's wrong with this movie that, you know, there, so I, I definitely understand that feeling. And I'm sure for a lot of fans out there, they can identify that's, that's kind of always the tricky thing with this. Cause again, in, in an ideal scenario, it holds up, but that's not always the case. And, you know, I, that was the question that I was going to ask you that you answered. And, and I'm, I'm <laughs> sad to hear, you know, that you, you really feel like in, in a lot of these instances, you wish you hadn't even gone back to it. And I guess that's the risk, right? When you, when you go back to something that you have this love for. Um, another example, completely unrelated to comics. And I know this is not something that was ever part of your fandom, but Power Rangers, the Power Rangers television show. I grew up, I love that. I mean, I watched it every day. I made sure I, you know, as soon as I got home from school, I watched it. I remember I was taping episodes. I, you know, I loved it. And they're all on Netflix now. And over the past couple of years, I've gone back and I've watched episodes for the first time since I was a kid. And I will say I can appreciate and understand why I like them the first time, which is good. So I'm watching, I'm like, oh, okay. Like I get why I liked this. But, you know, they definitely don't entertain me in the, in the same way. And, and I can see the seams and I, I can see where, you know, it doesn't quite hold up. But thankfully, for the most part, it doesn't take away from my overall love of Power Rangers. And the reason is, and this is what I, I'll offer if, if this is any, any solace, is whether it's Power Rangers for me or Silver Age Superman for you, you know, they served a specific function in our lives and our fandoms. And, you know, for you, I mean, that those Silver Age Superman stories made you a Superman fan, made you a comic book fan and reader, set you on a path. If not for that, there are all these other stories and people, you know, you would have never, you know, <laughs> interacted with. Unless I was a smoker. And so, yes, that's a reference to uh, a, a different podcast. But, uh you know, the, the point being that, you know, they served a specific function for you and no, you might not enjoy them the same way today that you did as a kid. And to be perfectly honest, I mean, I don't know how likely that would be, you know, for the reasons that you've already described. I mean, these really were written for kids. So it makes sense that as a kid in the sixties, these really grabbed your attention, you know, as, as a fully grown, you know, man in, in, as, the, not, in the 2020s. As, fully, as an old man, as an old man. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm over, over 65. I'm Medicare, buddy. <laughs> so, you know, you're at a completely different place in your life. So I, I think it's, it's perfectly understandable. But uh, again, they still served a, a critical function. And they, I guess my point is they did what they needed to do for you. And even if they don't quite still do that now, they serve their function. Yeah. And if, if I may, give me a minute. Uh, and, and then I want you to react. Uh, as you know, and, and you and I discussed this on a prior podcast, God, I love the George Reeves Adventures of Superman TV show. 
In the same fashion, I have profound loyalty and love and enthusiasm for the, the Edmund Hamilton and the Kurt Swan, uh, George Klein, those stories. Uh, but one thing I was going to say, the Superman that I've come to love and respect and, and um, the stories I enjoy most, to me, the characteristics he exhibits, he's intelligent. He's thoughtful, he's concerned, he's courageous. And I know you've discussed the other uh, portrayals of Superman in the Golden Age, where I, th I think even Mike uh, called him an outlaw. Well, geez, in the Silver Age that we're speaking about, he's really a role model. He's, he's very characteristic of law and order. I don't think he's a, he's a, a, a policeman, but he's, he's very, very pro the status quo very socially responsible. So to my mind, he's got some fantastic attributes. He's intelligent, concerned, courageous, thoughtful. I mean, even the, the word balloons, I, I enjoyed reading the things and I enjoyed the facial expressions, Kurt Swan embedded. Uh, so there's a lot of positive aspects. And I think for a 10 year old child, he was a great, the way he was portrayed, he was a great role model. On that note, because I did want to ask you about this. Are there, I don't know, any specific memories or instances where you can really recall a Superman comic shaping your morality, your worldview, the way you conducted yourself? Or even if it's not, you know, a specific instance, just generally speaking, I mean, I guess to what extent did the example that Superman set in the pages of these Silver Age comics, like to what extent did that impact the way you conducted yourself as you were growing up? Um, I, I don't think there was any, uh, any, any triggering event. Um, and we're going to get into this with a couple of these stories. Um, but later in time, I'd almost like to go back more thoughtfully and read certain stories. Um, I, I only got a glimmering, uh, just a hint of this, but some of the writers really used Kendor and the backstory there to voice opinions on society. Um, clearly, one of the things here is, I mean, boy, everyone talks about diversification and diversity and appreciation for all, uh, all forms of humanity right now, race, gender, on and on. They were doing that in these stories here. Superman was always respectful of every, every race, every culture. Uh, every religion, every ethnicity. So there were good values on that level. And also, I think, you know, sincerely, they really did espouse honesty and respect for others. So I would say those values, um, I don't think it was solely related. It, you know, there was a host of other things. But but clearly, those were the characteristics that were espoused in these stories. Understood. And so I'll, let me give my take now on my experience reading these stories. And in virtually every instance, I was reading these for the first time. A lot of these stories I had read about, I had read stories that drew from these original comics, but I hadn't read them, you know, themselves until this, this assignment. And let me just rattle off a few, just so people have a little bit more context. And again, we'll talk about each of these in greater detail as we move forward. But uh, again, the super key to Fort Superman, the sort of the, the unofficial kickoff to the silver age for Superman, uh, first Brainiac, first Supergirl, uh, Jimmy Olsen, number 37, Superman's super rival, Adventure 271, How Luther Met Superboy, 
as a Smallville fan, that one was particularly interesting. Uh, Superman 141, Return to Krypton. 149, The Death of Superman. Again, for this fan, very, very interesting. Superman 156, The Last Days of Superman. Action 300, Superman Under the Red Sun. And uh, Superman 162, The Amazing Story of Superman Red and Superman Blue. Uh, there were a few others you had on your list. That was specifically what I focused on. And I really want to thank you for selecting these stories uh, to represent this era. It was, again, a fascinating experience. So generally speaking, those are kind of the stories that, that we're drawing from as we make our way through this episode. But again, for the most part, I was reading these for the first time. And I will be honest, you know... I, listeners heard in the last episode, I was really, really taken with Golden Age Superman, particularly the earliest pre-World War II incarnation of the character, where he was, as you said, and as Mike had said, an outlaw. I mean, he was really standing up to bullies, taking on corrupt orphanage superintendents and sinister landlords and wife beaters and, uh, and again, really, really standing up to bullies on behalf of, of the underdog. He was really felt like a man of the people. He was tough. He was raw. He didn't have anywhere near the level of power that he would have down the line. And there was just a dynamic energy and electricity to those stories. And I genuinely enjoyed them. It wasn't even just that from an academic perspective. It was interesting. I thought they were like, I really enjoyed them. I did not have that exact same experience <laughs> with the Silver Age, though I did find it worthwhile in its own way. As far as barriers to like true, uh, you know, uh, true genuine enjoyment, I, I think I would point to a lot of what you've already espoused. You know, the again, the st sensibilities were very different. These were written for kids, um, you know, very heavy on on the exposition. They were very innocent. These stories, you know, would kind of only only go so far, at, you know, in, into adult territory. But um, positives, because I, I, I want to start with the positives. It was really cool to see where so many elements of the mythology that I'm very familiar with, that I've grown up watching and reading, to see where they came from. You know, the second story on this list is the first appearance of Brainiac. I've read a ton of Brainiac stories. I had never read his first appearance, even if that story itself didn't blow me away, you know, I, I, as I was going through that issue and a number of others, I, I had to continually kind of check myself and say, hey, listen, you've read a lot of stories that follow this, that borrow from this, but this is where it started. And so I have a lot of respect for the stories and a lot of respect for what, uh, what a lot, I mean, and, and I think just big picture, this era added so much. I mean, these stories were really, sci-fi influence again long gone were the days of you know tearing down tenements that were corrupting you know the the youth of, of america right you know he's fighting he's fighting brainiac and and he's meeting supergirl and he's discovering the bottle city of candor i mean it's again a very different feel but it added so many elements to the mythology that you know now we all kind of take for granted so it was really cool to see that and even more specifically than that there are specific stories that, you know, I'm very familiar with and I got to see, you know, see the stories that inspired them. I know we're going to talk more about robots later, but there was a story and I don't know if you ever read it. You probably didn't. The, the Dominus King of the World storyline from the late 90s. Are you familiar with this at all? No. No. Sorry. No. We're actually going to touch on that in an upcoming episode. I won't get 
I won't get too deep into it now, but uh, basically there's this villain, Dominus, who influences Superman's mind, and Superman effectively takes over the world. And to help him do that, he builds an army of Superman robots. And so this was a story that I read in, like, ah. in 98. And I remember at the time, I was like, boy, this to deal with these robots. <laughs> so, you know, now I got to read these stories where, you know, the robots are all over the place. Uh, similarly, one of the stories that we're going to touch on, which I found absolutely fascinating from a psychological perspective, the Superman Red, Superman Blue storyline. Also in the late 90s, um, there was a storyline I know people remember where Superman got electric powers and a new blue costume. And towards the end of that storyline, he was split into two, into Superman Red and Superman Blue. And again, at the time, I don't know. I mean, I was a little kid. I mean, I don't know exactly what I thought of it necessarily, but I definitely didn't know the, the historical context, the background for this. So it was it was fascinating to see that. And then one more example, um, very early on in this podcast, we covered the Jeff Loeb era of the Superman books from the early 2000s. And one of their big tentpole storylines was Return to Krypton. And in this reading assignment, I got to see Superman's Silver Age Return to Krypton, where he travels back in time and he meets his parents and he falls in love and he almost gets married. So it was, again, it was really, really cool to see the inspiration for a lot of the stories that I grew up reading. And even if I didn't enjoy the originals all that much, uh, I still appreciate what they added to the mythology and found it, again, to be a very worthwhile endeavor. Okay. I track with all of that. And I'm thrilled that you you spoke about, you know, other things, whether it was the, the, the Jeff, Jeff Loeb influence or the Dominus or the Super, you know. Yeah. I'm excited to, to go to the original and kind of contrast that with the, the, the stories in the 90s. One thing I want to say, and Anthony, I've never, I know this existed, but I've never done any research on it. But in that, that limbo area you spoke about, that time frame, I know this existed, but I've never even studied it on Wikipedia. But the Wortham uh, book, The Seduction of the Innocent, and, and the congressional hearings. For my own self-knowledge, probably when I retire, I'd like to study that more because I truly think some of the publishers got so anxious and so concerned that they really did make this much more child-friendly versus more of the freedom that, say, Siegel and others had in 1940 when he could be a more of an outlaw, more of a champion of the oppressed and a defender, you know, uh, of those against bullies. I wonder how much the Wortham hearings, the congressional hearings and investigations kind of fostered like, Hey, we look, this is our livelihood. We better, you know, they created the comics code authority. And I wonder if they, they reacted so intensely that they stifled creativity. Sorry. I, those are those. Uh, that's something I thought that occurred to me as you were speaking. Yeah, I'm I'm sure 100 percent that that was a big reason for why the violence was toned down and why the stories were so kid friendly. 
Um, just a quick side note, we're still recording, but do you mind, Rich, on your Zoom screen, can you try turning off your video and turning it back on? Because on my end, you've been frozen for the past few minutes. At first, I thought, I'm like, oh. man, he's really, he's really absorbing uh, what I'm saying there. <laughs> he's like stone-faced. I was like, I don't know if he likes this or not. So let's see. Is that see. better? It, it might. Well, right now I can't. I can't see anything at all. I've got it back on, uh, and my Wi-Fi is strong. I, I'm sorry. Let me turn it on and off again. Yet again. Sure. Some. Thank you for bearing with us, it. audience. We do appreciate it. I while you're while you're playing with that, let me just say that the next the next bunch of recordings will continue to be uh, conducted remotely. But uh, you know, I I'm getting more comfortable and i think we're getting to a point where we're going to start to have in-studio uh recordings where i'm actually face to face in the same room with a guest and and i'm really excited for that so i think before the year is out uh we'll start to have some in-studio recordings so rich you are still uh yeah you're still i don't see anything so actually you know what here's what we're going to do i am going to uh pause the recording for a moment and we're back now to our audience, but a moment passed. But for us, it was a few minutes as we tried to sort out some some technical issues. You know, Rich, we joke about your lack of connectivity at home, and it's very charming and endearing. But when we're doing these podcasts, man, <laughs> I sure do wish you weren't just relying on a hotspot. But <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> I want to say, and this I, know, I don't say this to call you out, but for anyone who watches our video podcast, if you're like, hey, this... The rich episodes look different than the other ones. <laughs> there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. There's a there's a platform that I normally use for my video podcasts. Uh, it's called Ecam. For anyone who's curious, like how I normally do my video podcasts, it's that's the platform. Some for some reason, <clears throat> whenever you've tried clicking the link to join the Ecam session, you're unable to to do it. Hence. We're using Zoom here, but the important thing is that we get the episode out to everybody, and I'm I'm happy to be able to do that, whatever it takes. Cool, I'm I'm focused now. <laughs> I want to ask you. We were talking about, you know, uh, the Wortham book and the Senate hearings and how comics generally changed significantly in the '50s. And I want to ask you one more question and then we'll take a commercial break and then we'll we'll get into the specific stories that we read. But I'm glad we had this conversation first because I think it really sets the stage. And we'll have some fun with the specific stories that we're going to talk about, but I think that uh, again it was it was really worth it to, you know, to kind of go through everything that we we've already talked about. Going back to those golden age stories, right? You know, Superman was born out of this this depression era that I would, you know, obviously I didn't live through it, but I would imagine it was a time of, of a lot of, of hopelessness and despair for a lot of people, maybe not unlike our current times living through a, a pandemic and all the unrest that we've seen. But, you know, I, I have to imagine that, you know, Superman bursting onto the scene the way he did in 1938 and standing up for the little guy um, at a time when people really needed it it's understandable why why that version of the character resonated and 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 you know caught fire so quickly jumping ahead now to the late 50s and 60s the period of time we're talking about where you were reading these comics yes there were the 
the Senate hearings and the Comics Code Authority and all of that. And, and I, I know that played a major role. But at the same time, and this is not something I can answer, but maybe you can as someone who grew up in that time. I mean, I, I guess from TV, movies, the history books, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that period of time always seems to be characterized as one of, of hope and optimism. Like, the good guys won World War II. You know, America led the way. America's the new world superpower. You know, we're going to conquer space. It, like, it seemed like it was a time of, of renewed hope and optimism. And Wortham aside, it, it kind of feels like these stories and their innocence kind of reflect that. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? What was it like to be growing up during that time? You know, it, it, everything, you, it was everything you said, right? There was, you know, we were going into space. Uh, there was preparation for the moonshot. Uh, the Kennedy era, it was called Camelot, right? It was called, so there was a lot of optimism. Um, uh, the Peace Corps was created. Um, I also think it wasn't just, if I may, it wasn't just Superman. I think some other, well, granted, there were, there were other television shows that were for an adult audience, but like The Lone Ranger was basically Superman in the Old West with Clayton Moore. And John Hart is the Lone Ranger and Jay Silver here heels. So I think the tone of shows for children, I also think, quite frankly, it was a lot of guys who went through World War II or they were in Korea and they were just disgusted by the, the experiences of war. And they might have gone a little more the other way in trying to protect their children and, you know, uh, just shield them from the horrors of, of the real world, so to speak. So I think it was all those things. It was the optimism. America was, you know, the leader of the free world. Technology, the jet age. Uh, a lot of things commingled. Kennedy with his charisma and uh, just the, the inspiration and the, the, the leading of, for the future, the, you know, the best and the brightest, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that all makes sense and that all tracks. And it, you know, further kind of feeds into what I think has become a theme on the show as we talk about the evolution of the character and that, you know, each generation kind of gets the Superman that it needs and that reflects the times, you know, and so, uh, yeah. And so I think, I think all of that does make sense. And I will say, while these Silver Age stories were not especially gripping or enthralling, there was for sure a certain charm and a comfort in reading these i will say even as an adult in 2021 reading these stories there was something like oddly reassuring uh, about them and i would imagine yeah. that's part of the reason why you know they appeal to so many uh back in the day so yeah and yeah. one more thing before we take the break or we can pick it up when you come back but i would like to talk about all the parts of the mythos i mean the fortress you know became like my god like a world unto itself uh they started mining and expanding things like lois lane got her own title jimmy olsen got his own title they started doing more and more for the backstory with lex luthor uh <laughs> they really supergirl got became her own got her own running title and they built the backstory into all these characters and I was going to say, and I'll bring it up, robots all be almost became a sub-genre by itself 
that guy had more sentient robots, sentient robots. I mean, he made Dr. Doom look like a piker with his, uh, his robots. These robots. I know you have a lot to say. I have a decent bit to say. These robots, man. All right, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pick up the robots a little bit down the line. Uh, in the meantime, let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. If you enjoy this show, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. I also hope you'll consider joining my Patreon community. The support of my patrons enables me to produce this podcast, and patrons get rewards too, including exclusive episodes, advanced listens, and more. Sign up today and get instant access to the back catalog. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all of my patrons. I truly appreciate your support. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On to Your Shorts and Cullen on Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. I also just want to take a quick moment and share that I've continued to connect with other fellow Superman podcasters, uh, which has been uh, absolutely terrific. It's great to talk to other people like myself who are doing who are doing this. And each show really has its own flavor and comes at Superman from a different angle. And I want to share a little message from another Superman podcaster or Superboy podcaster uh, with our audience. Hey, Digging for Kryptonite fans. This is Sam Rizzo from Superboy The Legacy. I want to tell you about my podcast. It's a live stream slash podcast hosted by me and my team of Superboy enthusiasts. The show is a tribute to the live action Superboy the TV series from the late 80s and early 90s. On the podcast series, me and my team examine and discuss all 100 episodes, conduct all new interviews with members of the cast and crew, and we look at Superboy the character across other media. The podcast series is available on all major podcast platforms, along with being available on the Superboy Legacy website at superboylegacy.com. All right, and we're back. So that was a message from Sam, host of Superboy the Legacy podcast. And uh, you will likely hear Sam maybe on this podcast down the line. Uh, He and I have been chatting. And uh, Rich, as I've shared with you, and I think I've mentioned this on episodes, I am planning uh, a bit of a deep dive into Superboy. Just as we've been looking at Superman and the evolution, uh, I want to spend some time with Superboy. And we'll probably get to that next year. So yeah, a lot of great Superman podcasts out there. And I encourage you to check out Superboy the legacy. So, okay, we're back. Do you want to dive into our, uh, the first item on our list here? Uh, action 241, 1956, the super key to Fort Superman. Yes. And, and once again, you're better at it than me. So if you could, if you could get the synopsis. I, yeah. I, I think, you know, for the most part, cause we have a decent number to get through and you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get bogged down in like full plot summaries for all of these. So I think the basic setup is fine. And, and for this, 
you know, Superman is uh, spending time at his Fortress of Solitude. And this is, I, I did a little research. I, I believe that there were earlier iterations of the Fortress, but this was like, the f f like full on Fortress of Solitude and establishing the version right. that we'll see moving forward. So he's spending time in the fortress conducting ex experiments and such, and he uh, finds out that someone has broken in and is leaving messages. And he has to figure out who has infiltrated uh, this sacred space. Now, I I'll toss it to you, and I want to get your thoughts on this, but I know I was, for the most part, I shared what I liked about this era earlier. I I let me pivot now and share why ultimately it was hard for me to connect with Silver Age Superman because this story, I mean, a lot of them, but this story in particular completely represents the, the main issue that I had. And it's not even so much a criticism. Like, I just recognize that it was a different take on the character and a different iteration. It's just not one that really responded to me. And I'm going to use a, a, an unexpected example, but uh, I know you're familiar with the television series Friends, yes? Okay. Yes. So there's this episode early on where Phoebe acts as Joey's agent for the episode. And towards the end of the episode, she has to deliver all of the negative feedback that Joey has gotten from casting directors on, on the various auditions he's gone for. And one of, the <laughs> one of the pieces of feedback that Phoebe has to deliver is that they didn't feel Joey was believable as a person <laughs> And I use this example because I, this Silver Age Superman, to me, is not really believable as a person. He comes across as so aloof and removed from humanity. And this story encapsulates that because, you know, he's so excited that he has a night to himself and he can spend it at his Arctic hideaway conducting experiments, testing his powers, building these shrines to the people in his life. And again, it just is so divorced from the version of the character that most resonates with me. And that big picture, more than anything else, more than the heavy exposition, more than the clunky dialogue, more than, you know, the the childlike innocence of these stories, that what was that was what was hardest for me about connecting with Silver Age Superman. I can totally appreciate that. Totally understand. I mean, you used the word removed, right? And boy, he went up there and basically closed the door. And for your listeners, and I hope they all know this, that the Silver Age Fortress of Solitude was in the Arctic. There was this humongous key that was basically... Uh, uh, the ulterior motive was it was going to be if a plane was ever flying over, it was going to give a directional signal as to where they should go. So this huge key that only he could lift, it would un unlock this door that must have been uh, five or six stories tall. Um, the interesting thing was that was the first fortress story in the Silver Age, the first one. Um, and then if I could say real fast, and I want to let you you dig into this more. Uh, the, the immediate next issue of Action was written by Otto Binder, and that story introduced the bottle city of Kandor. And to my thinking, they kind of needed this fortress story first because they needed a place. I mean, it's not like he could put this huge, tiny bottle in his apartment. Well, maybe he could in the closet with the robots. Maybe they could protect it. But um, uh, 
it, it, it seemed to me, uh, and, and then the two were just intrinsic, intrinsically related thereafter. Uh, so I, I agree with your comments on, and it, it, his journal, I still don't understand that journal, you know, that, that was like, uh, you, you tell the, your audience about how he would record in his diary. Right. He would use, well, now was it his heat vision or his finger nails or both over the course of the story? Do you remember? I thought it was heat vision. I thought it was heat. It was he, I, yeah. I'm, I'm maybe it was sure. his. Maybe it was his. Maybe it was both. I feel like it was later in that story. Maybe it was a different story where uh, they talked about his his fingernails. But yeah, at the very least, there's definitely an image of him using his heat vision to inscribe, you know, his his journal here. And here's the thing. Again, I feel like this is, you know, I don't know if I would go so far as to say if you're only going to read one Silver Age story, read this one. But uh, it really does set the stage and the tone for the Silver Age. And, you know, again, it's like the Fortress of Solitude is such an indelible part of the mythology. I mean, really, I'm currently watching Superman and Lois. And in the latest episode, uh, you know, Clark and Lois's son was, you know, was, was poisoned by kryptonite and they had to take him to the fortress and burn it out of him. Like, it's it's such a part of the mythology. And so it was cool to see it and to see it get so much play. And, you know, there were a lot of cool ideas. I mean, the intergalactic zoo, you know, that Superman keeps. Uh, so there, there were a lot of cool ideas and it added a lot. But uh, again, he just he just felt so removed from his humanity. And, you know, the kicker to the story is, you know, we find out that it was Batman who was who had snuck in and, and was leaving all these messages. He was playing with Superman uh, to celebrate mm -hmm. the anniversary of their first team up. Now, my favorite part of the story <laughs> And it's so minor, but man, it made me laugh. And I, I have to tell you, and and, and the audience as well. I, you know, I came downstairs to to here to Flat Squirrel Studios for most of this reading, and I was like cackling at at least one point in every issue that I read. And I remember coming back upstairs, and my wife was like, "What are you laughing at?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm reading these Silver Age Superman <laughs> stories. I'm like, they're like they're nuts. Like there's all this goofy stuff in there." But my favorite part and, from this and story, Anthony, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We really didn't even touch on the silly ones. I mean, there were stories <laughs> where Superman Superman used red kryptonite and gave himself the head of an ant, and he would lead all the ants on Earth to fool some alien species. <laughs> there was stories where he had the body of a lion, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. These were some of the more toned down ones. I mean, those guys must have been doing acid to write some of these the, the other stories. Yeah, and well, so two things. One, you know, it it would have been unrealistic, but also impossible to try to you know read read everything. Right? I say impossible because, as a side note, it was exceedingly frustrating how little was available on the DC app or in collected edition. Um, as much as there have been, you know, trade paperback and hardcover collections of, you know, Silver Age Superman stories, very few of them are still in print. And the app, the DC app is exceedingly spotty. And it was a real source of frustration. I mean, you, you know, you and I both ended up using Superman Through the Ages website. And, I, you, know, you know, they have like entire issues of Superman just on their website. And I, unless they have some sort of deal with DC, which I doubt, uh... I don't know that they're necessarily supposed to do that, but uh, I, I appreciate that it's available because it's the only place you could read a lot of these stories. Anyway, that's a whole other rant. 
But on the note of like like the writers doing acid or whatever, it's funny because I was reading these stories and I mean, as you know, like I, I don't get high, but I thought to myself, I was like, you know, if I did, I'd probably get high and read these stories and they would be like awesome. Like that's, I was reading a lot of these. I'm like, yeah, like if you were, if you were kind of coming to these in an altered state, I think you'd have a really good time. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> Anthony and I, if I may, I, I apologize. I interrupted you and it, you were just on, on the, uh, on the moment of talking about what made you laugh out of this story. I hope it's the same thing as me. So it's, I don't uh, know. We'll, we'll find out, but it's when Batman is explaining, you know, everything that he did and why he did it. And he talks about how, you know, it was so hard to find a good gift and we have this flashback. It's like just a panel, but it's Batman, like at a store, searching for a gift for <laughs> Superman. And, you know, when you and I, you and I talked about your first comic, that issue of World's Finest, we talked about it on an episode of my other podcast, My Comic Shop History. And, um, you know, we talked about it then, and I'll briefly, you know, I give a short version of it now. As much as Superman has changed a lot over the years, oh. man, has yeah. Batman changed a lot. And, uh, and so it's, you know, whenever Batman appears in these various stories, uh, it's, it's really shocking because it's so divorced from the Batman of, of modern era. Uh, and so the fact that Batman would be gifting Superman anything, let alone shopping at a store, uh, you know, really kind of, it really kind of takes a minute to get acclimated to that. That made me laugh in that issue. What was it for you? Okay. There were two things that made me laugh Two. uh, the first was how Superman pulled a sneaky trick on Batman. Like, hey, there's an avalanche and I'm trapped in here. Oh, it looks, you know, this kryptonite came right next to me. And there's no way you can move it for, far enough away that I'll regain my strength. So we're both going to die, right? And while we're waiting to die, why don't you tell me how you, how you got in here? <laughs> so so I, thought that, I thought that was funny. But the cake, the very final panel of the story... They're in the Bat Cave, and somehow Batman made this cake that was effectively the size of a fire engine. I mean, Superman had like a 12-foot uh, knife to cut the thing. Alfred must have been baking for months. Yeah, poor Alfred. That's true. And, you know, Superman, I think Batman says, like, you know, I don't know if it's very good. And Superman's like, it's okay. I can eat through steel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, again, uh, very unintentionally humorous. I don't know, but uh, yeah, well, I mean, a the other thing issue. that was really pivotal, if you, because it was it was foundational. It was foundational, and like I said, it gave them a place where they could store what we're going to chat about in the next story, the Bottle City of Kandor. But the other thing that was weird was, and in retrospect, the whole Silver Age was really creepy. Like Batman or Superman had all these rooms of statues, mannequins of his friends, you know, and he made like a car for Jimmy. I'm like, can I die? Jimmy's going to get this sports car. Yes. Uh, oh, wait, can we talk about then, that? Can we talk about that for just two seconds? Now I'm interrupting you and I apologize, but that that caught my attention, too. It's like, why can't you give Jimmy the car now so he can enjoy <laughs> it? <laughs> it's like. Right. And didn't he make pearls? Yeah. Pearls for Lois? A, a, a necklace? Yeah. 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 I mean, if if they knew about that, they'd probably, you know, be it'd be like cashing in on his life insurance policy. Let's kill the old guy now and get the gifts. 
Uh, but the creepiness. And then I think he even goes, you know what? If anybody ever breaks in here, I'm going to have a Clark Kent room so they, they're not able to connect the dots on my identity. One, you're going to be dead, so who's going to care? <laughs> but it was just kind of creepy. Let me have all these monuments. Uh. I'm with you. And again, look, it's very easy for us with the benefit of decades and all the stories we've read since to really kind of pick on these. But it is very, it's so funny to me. It's like maybe instead of building a Lois Lane statue you take the woman out to dinner good lord it's it's just, it's so funny to me uh, but again i know it was a different time uh but yeah i mean so that's that's our big fortress of solitude and you know the next you know the next issue introduces brainiac and you know most of the issue is superman and brainiac battling brainiac has this impenetrable force field and he's in the process of shrinking major american cities uh, but like you said, I mean, this introduces the bottle city of, I say Candor. I know you say Candor. Um, I don't know which pronunciation is, is really meant to be uh, the official one. But it, it introduces the bottle city, which is uh, along with Brainiac. I mean, these are two really key pieces. Uh, there's one thing that I zeroed in on and then I want to toss it to you because I think you, you probably have different takeaways from this issue. But there's a point where Superman just can't get through that force field. I mean, he, there's nothing he can do. He's losing against Brainiac. And so he puts on this whole show. We find out it's a show where he basically gives up, right? And he returns to Metropolis. But it turns out he only did that because he knew Brainiac would shrink the city and that would be his way to get through the force field. So it's clever. Mm. It's clever. But as I was reading it, I thought like, wow, how interesting would it be? Like, what if, what if he genuinely thought he couldn't win? And maybe he actually was scared. It's like, again, I know that's not the territory like these stories would ever get into. But as I was reading it, I'm like, man, I feel like that, like that would have been really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was more, I was more impressed or what uh, resonated with me or stayed with me was, and this is where I salute Otto Binder because he was planning for the future he introduced other Kryptonians and that gave them that opened the door for future stories. Uh, but the bottle city, I hope I'm saying it right. The bottle city of Kandor or Kandor, uh, that didn't appear to like midway in the story. It wasn't on the cover. It wasn't at the beginning of the story, but here it's become so intrinsic and so, so, definitively related to the entire mythos it's still with us now um but but it was almost like hey midpoint oh by the way i got this kryptonian city i'm gonna put it next to the the paris with the eiffel tower uh yeah they they uh they kind of buried the lead a little bit but yeah the bottle city will definitely <laughs> get a lot of play you know in, in a ton of subsequent stories including uh, including a number of the other ones that we're going to discuss here. You know, one of the earlier episodes of this podcast that I did was with uh, V. Ken Marion. We talked about the Godfall storyline from the mid-2000s in the Superman books, and it was all about Candor. Uh, you know, so it, again, even, well, that's not to this day, but, um, you know, it's it, you know, it still continued to get a lot of play. But actually, you know, on that note, I wanted to mention something about the passage of time, because I was thinking about this. This is a bit of a tangent, but it, it, I think it's an important one. I guess I was thinking about um, how large the Silver Age looms in in Superman lore, and 
clearly it established a lot that is still being used. That's undeniable. But in terms of how much of an influence it still is today, I, I was really thinking about this. And in my mind, <laughs> I always think of myself as coming to Superman relatively recently, right? But when I do the math, I mean, I've been reading Superman, I'm coming up on 30 years, three decades. And so when I was a kid in the 90s reading these comics, and you know, at the beginning of this episode, right, I mentioned a lot of the stories I read in the 90s that took their cues from Silver Age stories. And I think that, you know, a lot of the comics, you know, in the 90s, right, were, were written by people who probably came up on the Silver Age stories, and that was a big thing for them. And, you know, in, in my mind, certainly, you know, growing up that, I don't know, I, I always felt like the Silver Age loomed large. But I was thinking about it. I mean, now as we're in 2021, like if you talk to a, a relatively new young comic creator and ask who their influences are, it's probably Jeff Johns. You know, it's not Otto Binder. Yeah. You know, so I do yeah. kind of like I wonder and I would be curious. And, you know, for people who are listening or watching, I would love to hear from you because, you know, especially for people on the younger side, you know, I mean, I'm 34. So for people my age and younger in particular, like I would be curious. I mean, I don't know how big of a deal is Silver Age to, to people now, you know, and I don't have an answer for that, but I was kind of wondering about that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was going to bring this up later in the discussion, but uh, you could see, I mean, we're going to, well, I'll talk about it real fast. Some of the sales numbers for Superman in 1961 and 62. I mean, I think Superman in 1962, on average, it sold 740,000 copies of, of an issue on average for that year. Um, and then DC quit publishing their numbers in 1963 in the mid-60s. And I think some of that, Marvel came on strong. Marvel came on strong. And the sensibilities changed a little bit. But as you say, so many of these things that we're going to speak about now uh, were established then, and then they, they evolved and were mined. And like you said, someone's, someone now is going to look back 20 years, not really connected to what I'm speaking about, nor what Siegel and Otto Binder and others wrote in the late 40s or the, even earlier in time. Uh, but as you've said other times, this is really a, a, a tribute to the legacy and the power of Superman and how it's been prevalent for 80 years. Exactly. And, you know, I said this in the last episode and, and it bears repeating and, and revisiting and kind of reapplying now because... You know, the character has to evolve to, to endure for over 80 years. I don't think there's any way otherwise. And I said in the last episode, you know, that that earliest iteration that I fell in love with, the, uh, the rebel outlaw Superman, you know, if not, if not for that strong start, I don't know that there's a character to stick around, to endure, you know, but I would, I would apply that again here and... And say that, you know, Silver Age Superman, again, while the stories might not have, you know, blown me away necessarily, if not for those stories and the fact that they allowed, right. you know, they allowed the character to stick around at a time when comics were under fire and they introduced all of these elements of the mythology that are still being used. 
again, if not for that, if not for this period that we're talking about, yeah, I don't know that they're, that the character exists today or in the same right. way if, at least. Right. Right. And, and, you know, we have some laughter at some of the, uh, the panels and the plot lines and the statements, but you're exactly right. If, if those stories in, in the early 1960s were not successful, I mean, how many other characters, even you look at uh, Captain Marvel, created by Otto Binder. I mean, now that, that poor guy, they can't even figure out what name to properly call him. Um, <laughs> other characters have come and gone. Um, so it really is a tribute. And you know what? These guys probably figured, look, Worthing came on strong. We do have a good character. Let's change it so we adapt to the times. Um, it was both probably both enjoyable creatively, but also valuable on a business level in terms of profit and revenue. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, we, you know, we keep referencing like all these elements, right? And again, right at the top, we have the fortress, Brainiac, Supergirl, you know, there's, there's other aspects that we're not necessarily touching on in the stories that we read, but, uh, you know, B Bizarro and the variety of kryptonite and actually one yeah, of the six. stories... One of the stories we will talk about is, you know, this past between Luther and and Superboy, um, which, you know, was out of the comics for a while, then came back. Obviously, it was the bedrock of the Smallville TV series, which an entire generation of fans, including this guy, grew up reading, grew up watching and, and knowing. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of elements, the ones that we're talking about, but but others as well. Um, you know, you, you mentioned uh the, the fact that it, you know, this age introduced all these other Kryptonians. Uh, so, of course, the Bottle City. And then the next issue that we have is Supergirl. The other, I, I guess, another hallmark of this era is that, you know, there were more trips to Krypton. And one of the stories we'll talk about is, is Return to Krypton. I'm kind of, I'm kind of torn on this because on the one hand, I understand, I guess I understand the instinct from a storytelling point of view to want to explore the Kryptonian heritage and to actually, you know, send Superman to Krypton in the past and to bring these other people, you know, uh, to, to the current storylines. But at the same time, you know, I, I think it's, I see why post-crisis they stripped all of that away. Because I think that, you know, the whole last survivor of a doomed planet bit loses its impact <laughs> when he's surrounded by all these other Kryptonians. I mean, was yes. that, like yes. at, the, at the time, though, as a kid, I mean, was that like, were you to whatever extent you remember? And I know we're going back a long time, but I mean, were you like, were you happy and excited to meet all these other Kryptonians or at a certain point did it feel like, hey, this is this is probably a bit much? Well, both, both. I can remember reading certain stories where um, earlier in the 60s when they would add new elements and new layers to it, uh, you know, like you said, first there was green kryptonite, then there was red, and then finally it was six, six colors of kryptonite, right? Um, I, it was fascinating how they added to the lore and the myth, like on, on, on Krypton itself, the Jewel Mountains, or certain uh, animals. There were certain animals that I think were looked like perhaps like a rhinoceros, but it had like a, a, a big forehead that could show you what you were thinking or what you were was going to happen in the future or something. There was the Kryptonian flame dragons and stuff like that. And, uh, so 
they added incrementally to the lore. I mean, even in Kandor, uh, there was Van Z, who was Superman's uh, second cousin, who was almost a twin to Superman. Later on, he became Nightwing of the Night Nightwing and Flamebird. Uh, uh, so they they incrementally added, and that was fascinating. You know, I remember reading stories about Kryptonian flame dragons, or some of the civil wars on Krypton. Um, their their society, their 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 credos, their uh, social mores. It was fascinating. But then, candidly, two things happened. I aged. I came to appreciate more what Marvel was doing, where they were they were showing characters like you know Peter Parker, who even though he would do very courageous things, he still couldn't pay the rent. So there was the emotional tug. Um, I also think uh, I don't want to say they jumped the shark, but they did so much of this, it became almost no other place to go. Right. Uh, so while while it was powerful at certain points in its moment. You know, uh, candidly, after 12 years of these sort of stories, it just kind of got really got played out. Right. And, you know, and again, the next episode that we're going to be doing is Bronze Age. And, you know, I'm curious to see how the character further evolves there. I'm, I'm particularly curious about that era because I know what happens post-crisis, but we still have this Bronze Age in between. And so, uh, you know, so I, I am curious, uh, you know, to see that first. But, uh, yeah, I mean, everything that you're saying makes sense I, you know and you know you mentioned Mort Mort Weisinger and you know he was really you know I mean the editor at the time but really a, you know a guiding creative force for all of this is it fair to say that it it really um there really wasn't much of a of a of an attempt to reconcile the golden age iteration and I know ultimately the golden age character would be repositioned as the superman of earth too but I mean it was almost sort of like almost like a blank slate right from the silver age right. forward no, uh, and I, in preparing for our discussion, I read some stuff. And uh, Weisinger was a Superman editor really in the late 40s. He started. And then something happened in 1958 where they consolidated a number of Superman titles together. So his uh, purview became broader. He, he had all Superman titles. Um, and then apparently he, he got a lot of resistance when he wanted to do Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen in their standalone titles, but oh my God, the, the numbers they were getting for those titles, like Lois Lane was getting uh, half a million, uh, uh, issues per month or uh, per, you know, per issue, uh, print, print, printed version. Jimmy Olsen was getting like 475,000. So the numbers, I mean, this was a moneymaker. Um, but I do, to your point, I also wanted to say this. I think there was such consistency, right? You had Mort Weisinger. He had his staff of writers. You had Otto, uh, Otto Binder. You had, you had Jerry Siegel. And I really do, in a couple of issues, we're going to talk about Superman 149. And boy, have I got thoughts on that. Um, critical, valuable thoughts. But you had this stable of writers, whether it's Binder, uh, Siegel, uh, Leo Dorfman, Edmund Hamilton is my favorite. And then you had consistency in artists. You had, you had Wayne Boring, you had Al Plastino, and especially Kurt Swan. So there was phenomenal consistency for a good 12 years 
you know, most of these stories, one of those three artists drew, drew almost all of them. I don't, I can't think of any other Superman artist in that 12 year time span. Yeah. I, no, it's, it's very true. I mean, definitely that high level of consistency. Uh, I mean, it's a very, once we actually get into the silver age, I do think it's a very well-defined period of the character. Um, and yeah, those sales numbers are, uh, are, are definitely staggering. Uh, a couple of follow-up thoughts. Uh, you know, you mentioned Lois and Lois, there are certain characters were, that we've kind of been touching on in these episodes like Lois and like Lex and probably like Jimmy as well. Um, and I plan more of a deep dive into them in the future because I think there's enough there to really, to really get deeper. I don't think the Silver Age did Lois any favors, um, you know, and it, I was thinking back to the Golden Age, like her first appearance, you know, she, she we meet her and she's kind of stuck writing the like the love advice column, but she wants to be an investigative reporter and she gets there. And even in the sillier stories to follow in the Golden Age, like there's one where uh, this this therapist tells her she has to transfer her feelings of love for Superman to someone who's more attainable and she settles on Clark. And so she's like throwing herself at Clark, the whole issue. And Clark is like, I can't have this. This is getting in the way of me being Superman. And so the way he is able to kind of divert her is by scooping a story out from under her. And that sets her off because she, you know, that matters to her. And so that was a silly story that that in and of itself, the premise of that again, that golden age story that wasn't doing Lois any favors, but the fact that she still cared so much about getting the story, I think that that came through. And again, even going back to the beginning when she's doing the, the love column and she wants more, you know, she's breaking the mold. Even the fact that she's just out there working at that, that period of time as a, as a single woman, I think was, was really ahead of its time. But the fact that she aspired for, for more and broke that ground and, you know, in, in at least the stories we read, I mean, she does little more than pine, for Superman. And I think it really did a disservice to her. I agree. And I, I, I don't think it's just Lois. Right. I, th I, I think there was a common uh, response by the people at DC, the publishers, uh, you know, whether it's Julius Schwartz or Weisinger or others, they were very misogynistic. I mean, uh, they almost, uh, yeah, they were very, very misogynistic. They did not really uh, let women grow or, you know, it, it was also in some ways, I hate to say the tenor of the times, you know, uh, women were not in the uh, workforce you know, they, or they were secretaries or stenographers. Uh, but it did a definite disservice to Lois, where I'm thrilled about some of the things you and I have discussed uh, about more of the stories in the 90s, about when they got married. Um, and even when we did our Superman 2000 script, we thought that was a much better outcome by not adapting that script. So I agree with you. I mean, the stories were so child oriented. It, it, probably in the moment it sold issues, but in hindsight, they don't stand up well. Yeah, I, I think with Lois in particular, the thing that kind of breaks my heart is that you know she was a trailblazer initially, and I feel like she lost some ground in this period of time. It's funny too, because when you and I talked about Adventures of Superman and, you know, we, we did many hours on that, so I, I won't rehash the whole thing, but, you know, there was a change in actress from Phyllis Coates to Noel Neal between seasons one and two of the show. And, you know, the Phyllis Coates version of Lois was tough as nails. 
feistier real feisty and they and as much as i love noel neal and i think she did a, a lovely job over the rest of the series it was definitely a softer more demure daintier you know version of lois and you know that kind of then lines up with what we see later on in, in this era the other thing i want to follow up with because i think this is such a such an important piece you 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 know i mentioned uh kind of losing interest and and being more interested in a character like spider-man right and, you know, Spider-Man, of course, is that everyman, right? He's going through all of these personal struggles while trying to also be a superhero. There's a relatability aspect. And that was, I guess, the other thing. And this ties back to my overall problem with this more aloof, godlike Superman. It's more, I guess it's more inspirational slash aspirational. It's like he's infinitely kind and patient and good, and he always knows what to do. And I don't know, I guess maybe for a certain time and a certain audience, that that might be the right approach. I don't know, that might be what you want to see in, in your superhero. Um, but I far more gravitate to the version of the character who doesn't always have the right answers, doesn't always do the right thing. He, you know, he's just trying, he's just a guy. You know, at the, at the end of the day, it's like he's just a guy like trying to do the right thing. And so I, I like a version of Superman who doesn't always have the right answers, but you know, and, and again, you know, for you growing up reading these, I mean, I don't know, maybe there was that, that comfort in that, not so much like, oh, I, I identify with what he's going through. Like you might with Spider-Man, like, Hey, I got to pick up the eggs and also, you know, do well on my tests, <laughs> you know, but maybe there's more of that aspect of like, oh, I want to be like Superman because he always knows what to do. So again, it's like, it doesn't necessarily, it's not what I want out of Superman, but I guess I get why that would be an approach. Yes, I can. I, I you said it so well, uh, and and Anthony, I'll tell you this: the stories I loved, you know, like some of like you know, I love the last days of Superman, uh, uh, the world's finest stories where Superman and Batman were best friends. I love the Kurt Swan artwork, but you're right he he's not stunned. He's not mentally staggered. He doesn't have uh, things that he really has to figure out how am I going to handle this? He's very, he's thoughtful. He's concerned. He's courageous. He's very confident, right? He's got the answer. So my readings from say 1962 or 1964, by the early 70s, I was really into Marvel. I mean, I was, there was a lot of Roy Thomas stuff I was reading or the Avengers Cree Skrull War because I was a little bit older you know, uh, instead of being 10, I was 15 and 16. So I wanted more thoughtful stories that were more representative of what I was experiencing at that point in my life. Um, and, you know, I, I think we can, uh, I don't want to do a disservice to your audience. We could probably debate this for hours and hours and hours and hours. And we still probably would still have philosophical thoughts Um but you're right. I think it was a disservice to Lois. Uh, they almost laid, made Lois and Jimmy comedic relief or caricatures. Um, but, you know, hey, certain things that were done um, have been intrinsic to what we're seeing now. Unfortunately, they survived and current writers are able to let it breathe or let it expand and stuff like that. And I think that's, I think that's a critical piece to all of this where you know, it, it, it lays the groundwork it both, I guess, positively in terms of the additive elements that we've been talking about, but but also 
negatively might not be the right word, but, you know, a lot of the great stories that we've read in maybe in more modern times, you know, were informed by these stories, right? And so you have people growing up who maybe wished that Lois or Jimmy had more dimension to them. And then they, they write those stories, you know? So again, it, it really is an evolution and it's, and it's a layering. And so again, I, I kept checking myself throughout this process and reminding myself that the, you know, these, these stories really, um, that there's value there, even if, even maybe in ways that you, maybe you don't necessarily see right, right off the top. I'm dying to get to that issue of Jimmy Olsen. But before that, is there anything from the Supergirl, uh, the introduction of Supergirl that oh. you wanted to, that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, the things I'll say and, uh, before I, I've got three comments, but why don't you, you give a much better synopsis than I do. So we why meet, don't you we give meet a quick- Supergirl, a rocket crashes, Superman investigates, and it's Kara Zor-El, his cousin from Krypton, uh, her city of Argo escaped Krypton's destruction. Uh, <laughs> they were able to survive in space. They were able to survive the effects of kryptonite by uh, lining the, the, the ground beneath them with uh, <laughs> like lead shielding. Um, but eventually their, uh, <clears throat> their time ran out and her father sent her to Earth. You know, so, I mean, that's the basic setup. I mean, it introduces Kara Zor-El, I mean, a major player in the Superman mythology, you know, for years she operated in secret as as his has his secret weapon before he finally uh, introduced her to the world. But uh, there's there's one thing that that makes me laugh about this issue. But I want to I want to let you go first. What what stands out to you? Uh, probably the three things I'll say. Again, this was a profound step by Binder to introduce more Kryptonians. In reading the story now, my God, they were so mean and harsh and almost uncaring. I mean, here you've got this, in reading it now, you've got this poor girl who was rocketed away, but she was basically 15, right? So she had enough going on. She, had, she wasn't a two-year-old or an infant because that varied with Superman. But she's now stranded on a new world. She's an alien. She's a 15-year-old. Superman basically... Uh, places her in the Midville, Midvale Orphanage. So in reading it now, I was so sympathetic to all the stresses that must that poor girl must have been going through at that point in her life. Here, she's rocketed to Metropolis. She's wearing a costume identical to her cousin's. She's trying to track down Superman. You know, we're two people from a, a destroyed world. Hopefully you can help me in my new world. Nope, he just drops her off at an orphanage, which is a common theme with Kryptonians, right? <laughs> um, but I did feel great sympathy. That must, you know, I, I do think other writers could have, in today's world, could have mined that uh, uh, much more. So I felt great sympathy for that. Uh, but the other thing that uh, that was... Only in this reading, because Anthony, when I was younger, I knew Supergirl through other stories. So when I read this Action 252, it really didn't alarm me. But reading it for an academic purpose made me think about what she must be experiencing. So when when I first read the story, it didn't mean anything to me because I knew of her and I knew about Argo City and I knew about her, her father and I knew that they were cousins. So this was just like, okay, I can check the box. Now I understand the first story. 
Um, but reading it academically or reading it critically now made me conscious of the fact that, wow, emotionally, that must, that they could have portrayed that as being very, very hard. Yeah. It's like, she's a real good sport. You know, she just goes right along with it. I mean, that's, that's the thing that made me laugh about this where, you know, she wants to come live with, with Superman and, you know, he's basically like, nah, I can't deal with this. You know, I think, I think he has a thought to himself about, oh, this will interfere with my Clark Kent identity or some, some nonsense like that. But he, the way he, and maybe orphanages had a different, conjured a different image back in the day. I doubt it. I, I mean, but the way he presents the idea of an orphanage, you would think he was telling her, like, you're going to Disneyland, kid. It was just like, it so made me laugh how he presented it. You know, he presented the idea of the orphanage as such a positive to her. He's like, you can't come live with me, but I've got something even better. You're going to live in an orphanage. You know, and she goes right along with that. I mean, of course, she, what else does she know? But, uh, oh my God, I can't believe I forgot this. That, But that sparked a memory. I got to jump back to the Brainiac story. And when Superman enters the uh, the bottle city of Kandor for the first time, and he meets one of the Kryptonian scientists, and he introduces himself as Kal-El, son of Jor-El. And the scientist goes, oh, Jor-El? Why, he was my roommate in college. Right. It's just, <laughs> just made me laugh. It's like, oh, I didn't realize Krypton had the same <laughs> same educational and, and housing system as Earth. Anyway, uh, but so, yeah, so he so he so sells Kara on this idea of, of the orphanage. And it ends up being this, like, dilapidated, rundown it's a room. Dump. And she has to use her powers to like yeah. fuse the like the the broken yeah. mirror shards together, but you know sweep sweep the place out, you know, and then fix the broken uh, the the leg and the broken bed. Exactly. You know, I know that you you didn't you haven't followed the Supergirl TV series, but um, in, in that show, Superman brings Kara to to a to a family. There's a scientist named Jeremiah Danvers who he had worked with, and that's who he brings Kara to. So, he, you know, he doesn't dump her at an orphanage, but some of the characters, one of the, I don't know if it's Jimmy Olsen later on in the series does kind of like call Superman out for that. Like he says to Kara, he's like, you know, Superman just like dumped you there. Um, so, you know, there, there oh, really? is an element like, you know, again, I, I guess I'm going to undermine what I just said about Superman always being in the silver age, always being, you know, kind and good. It's like, this was kind of a dick move. I mean, if we're being perfectly honest and it's not his only one in this period of time. Yeah. But, uh, to to counter that or to give a different perspective this was 1958 right true his his um frame of reference you know his core cast was perry jimmy and lois friends with batman the justice league hadn't even been formed uh his parents were dead i really don't think the publishers of dc wanted a single man having a 15-year-old girl living with him, uh, you know, in an apartment. Uh, so I, I don't know what other options, what other options they really would have had, I, you know. Yeah, I, no, I, I don't disagree. But I do think your point about there being unexamined trauma there is, is a very salient point. Um, can, we, can we jump to Jimmy Olsen 37? Go right at, um Please. This story was. I forced. I forced you to read this to give me an entree to the robot subgenre. Yeah, super Superman's super rival. This story. This made me laugh because you know. The, so it's a Jimmy Olsen story. This is at this point. This is the only Jimmy Olsen story I've ever read. Interestingly enough, the, you know, from his solo title. I mean, but 
the basic premise is that this new hero that with a bandaged face named Mysterio, interestingly, uh, arrives on the scene and, you know, basically declares himself Jimmy Olsen's new protector. And, and Superman is baffled by who this person could be and why he's keeping his identity a secret. And the, the reveal is that it's a Superboy, a long lost Superboy robot uh, who essentially wants to take Jimmy Olsen's place, but not in a sinister way. He plans to uh, like give Jimmy all these diamonds and send him off on the, on the, the vacation of a lifetime and uh, basically take over as Jimmy Olsen, as Superman's pal, you know, continuing in this, in this role that he enjoyed when he served Superman when he was a boy. Um, the thing that was so funny to me about this, and yes, it, we, we do start to get into the whole robot bit, but the thing that was so funny to me was, like, I get Superman, I get Superman being mystified, pun intended, by the identity of the person under the bandages, but I don't get why it would be such a big deal for someone else to save Jimmy. Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? Why does it, it was weird. It's like, why does it matter so much to you that you're the one he calls with the signal watch? Don't you have anything better to do? We know how much you love doing your experiments in the Fortress of Solitude. It's like, <laughs> that, that made me laugh. That was my, that was the, the, the funniest thing to me about that. But what, what stood out to you? And do you want to, do you want to get into the bit about the robots now? Well, yeah, we, we might as well. We might as well. So, um, I'm going to repeat my. I said this earlier. Uh, well, uh, let me let me give the backdrop. So here you had Mysterio, who was a Superboy robot, right? And I think the last line, the very last panel, was something like, "After Superman has taken this robot, he tried to to deactivate and shit can all these robots, right? And then apparently some mole." Uh, uh, hit the Superboy robot a certain way. Mysterio wanted to get back into Superman's life. For robots, there's a lot of emotion. <laughs> uh, and then Superman basically said, you know what? You were the first robot I built that was capable of self-fought. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retrofit you now and make you one of my Superman robots. You know, I'll transplant your, your programming. And then the last panel is something like, oh, Superman, if a robot, if a robot could express love, I would be weeping tears of joy, right? As he's shoving him in some closet with four other robots. Uh, but Anthony, there were other stories. Uh, there was a story later on. I don't, it was on my list and I deliberately plugged it in. It was one of the more um, highly acclaimed stories, but it was a story about Wonder Man. Yes. Yeah, Superman's. And did you get a chance to even peruse that? I read the entire thing because you, you, oh. you, I know you, because I said, I wrote to you and I was like, I think I've read as much as I'm going to read for this. And you were like, if you haven't done Wonder Man, you know, read that one. So I did. Yes. Okay. Uh, so once again, he's got another robot. Uh, I think this was Ajax, this robot. There was still, an, there were two other robots I read a, a, as a, as a boy. Uh, there was X1. And then even far later in time, there was another story where Superman got tired of his robots and decided he was going to start building androids. So he was building this android up in the fortress. There was some big explosion. And uh, the robot, the android, 
got hurled behind this lead shielding. Superman thought the robot was destroyed. So the robot had got, got propelled behind this lead shielding. Superman leaves the fortress uh, after this explosion. The robot is vindictive and angry that Superman abandoned him. So the robot comes back and plays like basically gaslights uh, Superman. Somehow when Superman's asleep, he puts these uh, Kryptonian shoes on him that, that nullify his powers. And then the robot comes in and starts supplanting him. You know, he, he goes into Clark Kent and reveals himself as, as Superman. Uh, so he was resentful that he was abandoned. This Superman has more sentient, emotional robots who are capable of autonomous thought. It just, it just blows my mind. Uh, getting back to the story, the, the story about Wonder Man, this was a situation where a Superman robot was sent out to do some mission in space. It was really a setup by some villains, uh, some the Superman Revenge Squad or some other villains that wanted to destroy Superman. They realized it's a robot. They knock out, I think, the, uh, the rockets on his back. And somehow the aliens transplant the Superman robot into this android body. They convince him he's human. Uh, I did like, as a child, I loved this story and I had this issue. I really liked the nobility of the character. I mean, I did like the few panels where Superman and Wonder Man teamed up. And for a panel or two, Superman was excited, like, hey, you know, we can do a lot of good together. They were both very optimistic and very positive. And then in like the last two panels, Wonder Man gets him and goes, hey, I need to tell you something. Uh, I'm going to be dead in like 12 hours. But he was very optimistic, very noble. He sacrificed himself to do good things. And then the last panel, we reset the status quo, and there's a memorial or a shrine to Wonder Man, you know, born a robot, but he died a man. Um, <laughs> but again, this guy's got more done-in-one robots that are capable of self-thought and autonomy. Like I said, he makes Doc Doom look like a piker. Well said. And, you know, even just from these two robot stories that, that I read, the Superman Super Rival from Jimmy Olsen and then the Wonder Man story that, that you described, I guess one takeaway is when a new mysterious superhero debuts and we don't know who it is and there really aren't any clues in the story, probably a robot, probably one of the robots. <laughs> the thing is, I just don't like the idea of the robots generally. And we talked about this when we did our, our origins discussion, right? And that Superboy story or the Superman origin story, but sure. it's during the Superboy sequence where, you know, the, the Kents are discovering all the powers that Superboy has and they're rolling with the punches. And I was fine with that. And then all of a sudden Superboy's like, oh, to, you know, protect my secret identity, I've created all these robots. And Pa's like, well, that's great. That's where the story lost me. It's like, you know, you found the kid in a rocket, you figure something's up, the powers you can kind of make sense of. But the fact that all of a sudden he's building these fully functional robots it just, it lost me. And also, again, I, not to belabor the point, but just this idea of him being removed from humanity. It's like, he's, there's way too much going on. He, like, he engages with robots, like, far too much, I think, at the expense of actual, you know, human relationships. But, yeah, I mean, they were definitely a staple of, of the time. 
the the other funny thing about the uh, the, the Jimmy Olsen storyline, right, was that the robot was able to have his face fully bandaged because he had relocated his eyes yep. to his knees. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that there, made a lot of sense. There was that there was that clever bit. And then again, he <laughs> this he pulled the same the same tr- not trick, but the same bit on the Superboy robot that he did yep. with Supergirl where he's like like I know what would be the best fate for you. You'll love this. He like shoves him in a closet with all these robots, these other Superman robots. But to your point, the the ro- he loved it. He was happy. So Superman was actually on point with that. But again, same type of thing. I feel like what Superman thinks would be like a happy ending for for other characters is a bit skewed. Hey, Anthony, at least he didn't take him up to some mountain cabin. <laughs> Turn off his power source, you know, and go don't climb down this uh, I thought you were going to say the same thing. He did the same thing with Batman. Like he faked out Mysterio with false kryptonite thinking he was dying to get him to reveal himself. Uh, yeah. You know, the other thing. And yeah. uh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is very, very relevant. There were other stories that I remember being a child and even I was like, Wow, they're really pushing this. Like some robots were writing full stories for for the Daily Planet. Like I mean, there were certain stories where at the end of the story, Superman flies back in. And goes, "Hey, good job with that story." So these robots were so functional; they could do investigative reporting. They could type up front page stories. Perry Perry White, the editor, was pleased. And then, lo and behold, you learn, you learn the robot was filling in for all the Clark Kent scenes for the entire issue. Yeah, I, again, I just feel like these robots, beyond pushing that suspension of disbelief to its breaking point, uh, again, I just feel like it was, it was it became too much of a of a of a crutch, you know, especially when they needed to explain something away, like oh, it was a robot. But again, you know, it was it was a, a staple of the era. And like I said, I mean, they use them in that 90 storyline. And so it was kind of cool to see these, these earlier, uh, the other, these earlier stories that utilize the robots. I just wanted to say too, and this is not specific to any one story, but, um, you know, we talked about the, uh, the, the length of some of these stories and, you know, in the, in my golden age reading, I mean, almost all of those stories were at most half an issue. So, you know, we were talking 12, 13 pages and uh, now in the Silver Age reads, there were a few that were still in that range, but we were running in, we're now running into a lot more of the of the full issue stories where we have, you know, a single storyline broken into three, you know, eight page chapters. Um, so that was definitely a shift that I noticed. And then um, this was not new. This was part of the Golden Age stories as well. But one thing that I've been struck by in reading all of these pre-crisis stories is is the I don't know what you call it necessarily, the setup page, the first page of the issue, you know, kind of giving you uh, a little a little preview of an action scene or, or an emotional scene to come with a little blurb about like what you're about to read. Right. And and also the first page of the issue is in some ways a replica of the cover. Right. You know, uh, so it was almost like a second cover. But yeah, it th- that's where I came to enjoy and you saw how DC changed. Because that 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 first page would be a preview of the story, 
it was better when they got more into the Marvel style, where the, the first page might be one single frame, but it would start the story as opposed to be separate from the story, separate from, you know, teeing it up. Yeah, it was just interesting. Again, just going back to the sensibilities and the, the conventions of storytelling to see how that evolved. Well, you know, one other thing occurred to me, literally the second. I wonder if they had that first page be a little bit different. Because for some of these stories, even even we read the 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 twenty four page three eight page things, right? But when you had three separate stories in the same issue, you really didn't know what was going to be the cover story. So maybe they did use the blurb uh, to tee up that individual story when there were three different stories, you know? Uh, right. So uh, moving along here, so we've been going for about an hour and forty minutes, but uh, this man, this has been great, and uh, we don't have a we don't have a ton more stories to get through. So I think I think we're in good shape here. But nineteen sixty, Adventure Comics two seventy one, how Luther met Superboy. Again, like I said before, just this this ability to you know go back and see the origins of the elements and the conventions that I'm so used to but see where they started was was really cool for me and as you and I think by now listeners are well aware of my deep love for the television show Smallville I mean at the heart of that show was the doomed friendship between Clark and Lex and we spent 7 years uh watching these two guys go from best friends to enemies and and it was um for for all of the shows faults <laughs> i think that was one area where they they really nailed it i think they did a great job of showing um how they ended up where they did but you know again i had never read this silver age story where we get the backstory between superboy and lex and we get to see how again they started off as friends and allies and it took a turn and um well i guess let me toss it to you what what were your impressions of this issue uh in a sad fashion, Anthony, I did not read that for this discussion. Okay, it was, you, you put it on the list. Yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. But but at one point, you had also said, hey, we don't have to read every single one. Uh, so I'm doing this off memory. Um, but yeah, um, they were friends. And then, you know, again, uh, now I'm being in a malicious humor humor frame of mind. I guess Superman or Superboy should let him burn to death, right? You know, because he blew out. There was a, there was, Luther was doing an experiment. Superboy went to protect him and save him and wanted to extinguish the fire that I guess was a chemical fire. But somehow it made Luther go bald. And that, that created this, this enmity and resentment towards Superman and fostered the, uh, the, the hostility and the, uh, the lifelong uh, antagonism. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's funny, though, because I feel like Lex just comes off, I mean, appropriately enough, I suppose, but I feel like Lex just comes off as like such a psycho in this issue from the jump, because it starts off with Superboy, uh, he, you know, he's on flying on patrol, and he notices Lex, and he's like, oh, that must be the new boy in town, let me go introduce myself, and he hasn't clocked the kryptonite that's that's lying there. And uh, Lex does Superboy a solid and he's like driving a tractor and he pushes the kryptonite like off a, off a cliff and that saves Superboy. And, uh, and you know, Lex, Lex is thrilled to meet Superboy and in fact shows Superboy this like shrine to him 
that Lex has created. He's a fan. Like Lex is a Superboy fan, and he has a, I guess, much in the same way as uh, you know, Superman will have his trophy room in the Fortress of Solitude and his his character specific rooms. Uh, you know, Lex has something similar for Superboy. And uh, and as a as a thank you for getting rid of the kryptonite, uh, Superboy builds Lex this state of the art laboratory. laboratory, right? So they really get off they get off on a great on the great foot, and you know they just they just want to keep this gratitude you know circle going. So Lex decides to come up with an antidote for kryptonite, and uh, but as as you as you had described, uh, you know eventually he knocks over this uh, this this vial and it starts a chemical fire, and you know Superboy happens by. And he uses his super breath to to try to put out the fire, um, but the combination of chemicals that 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 uh, that are exposed to each other uh, cause Lex to go bald. And Lex blames Superboy, and like you said, this sets them off on this path. And it's like, I, I don't know, I don't I don't know what the right response would have been. It's like from Superboy's perspective, super breath sounds like a natural response to a fire. At the same time. Yeah, maybe you want to see who's inside first, if there's a way to get them out. I don't know. But then again, from Lex's point of view, it's like, yeah, what did you want Superboy to do? I Like, I don't feel like Superboy's use of Super Breath in that instance was so, uh, you know, it was, egregious. it was so egregious that it's like, why, you know, why, why would you have done that? It's like, well, it was a fire. That's the power I have for fires. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, and I say that Lex just comes across as such a psycho because like he blames Superboy and Superboy, I think for the most part is like, he's, he's apologetic and he doesn't, and throughout the rest of the story, like Lex just wants to show that he is this great scientist. He's better than Superboy. He creates like all all of these inventions to help the town of Smallville, but they all backfire. And I'm, I don't have the specifics uh, off the top of my head. I, but something like he, like these fast growing trees, but then they grow too much. It's stuff like that. And it's like every invention he comes up with, there's some problem with it. So it's like, I don't think he's as great a scientist as he, as he proclaims to be. And he keeps blaming Superboy, but Superboy is just like so calm and forgiving. I feel like (laughs) throughout the story. Um, But yeah, I don't know. It was, it didn't have the depth or nuance necessarily that you, you might want to see in a story about how these two guys became enemies. I think, you know, um, when Mark Wade reintroduced this backstory in Birthright, I think he did it in a way that was a lot more effective and that uh, did, did you know, much greater service to the characters. And for anyone who hasn't read that, I encourage them to. But uh, yeah, this was interesting. It was fun. Yeah, no, I agree. You gave a superb perspective. Uh, your, your comment about him not succeeding with some of his experiments clearly he fixed that in some of the later story the the other luther stories we're going to touch on real soon well so okay so Um, on that note because that's perfect segue um one of the stories on our list that i'm going to kind of jump over in the interest of time is the return to krypton and i know you did not reread that in advance of this correct so i think that's fine if we we kind of jump over that uh but yeah basically superman goes back in time and he has this uh, you know, he develops a friendship with his parents. He falls in love, and the woman he falls in love with, Lila, uh, we'll see her referenced in subsequent stories. Like I said, in the 2000s, the super teams, uh, the creative teams on the Superman books uh, would would do new returns to Krypton. So it, it definitely, I think, was an inspiration for later stories and, uh, again, was indicative of, 
you know, the amount of time that Superman would, would be spending on Krypton in, in the Silver Age. But I want to jump to Superman 149 from, uh, from 1961, The Death of Superman, which, you know, again, if you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you know that 1992's Death of Superman, that was my entry point. So to read this imaginary story that was not ever intended to be in continuity, uh, but that came three decades before the story that got me into, into Superman. Uh, it, it was fascinating. I, I, uh, I mean, the short version is that <laughs> Lex, Lex tricks and kills Superman and he stays dead, which was shocking to me. And I'll circle back to that. But what were your impressions of this story? I want to let you say a few more things, Anthony, because okay. <laughs> no, this is something that I've got, so many thoughts on this. Uh, so I don't want to step on your toes or I've got so many thoughts on this thing. Um, well, it's all right. You can go first. Do you really okay. rather me to keep okay. going? No, you go. I want, I, cause I want to, again, you grew up reading these stories. You've come back to them. I, I mean, I would love to hear, okay. you know, okay. You uh, this made a, a big impact on me when I read it as a child and it, it, it's something that's stayed with me. And then even when I read it for this discussion, it still has a very profound, vibrant impact. I have to confess, I kind of find it gloomy and morbid and, and just depressing. And I, I feel kind of morose at the end. Um, but to your point, um, some of the things that really crack me up, I'll go through it and, and I'll do it. I'll, I'll be typical Rich Roney. I'll, I'll elongate this. So the story starts out with, with Lex Luthor in this prison yard, right? And he notices a meteorite, like over, you know, I don't know how all the other guys walking around don't see this thing, but only Lex sees this meteorite of, I think it was Element Z. Element Z. And obviously, He's very confident. I'm just going to sneak. I'll punch this guard out so he makes me shovel near uh, where the meteorite is. And I'll just pick up shards of the meteorite and go work with them in my cell. So obviously it's not toxic or threatening. The, the meteorite doesn't hurt people. Kudos to him for being that brilliant. You know, that, 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 that kind of mystified me. But like you said, he, he uses this element Z, I think, I think at first to cure cancer, he cures cancer. And then later on, uh, you know, he's released from prison because he said he turned himself around and uh, Superman helps him get more element Z so they can, they can cure cancer on a worldwide level. And then he goes, Hey, I'm going to start working on curing heart disease, but it's all a fake setup. Uh, and, and even the thing that cracked me up, I, um, I know you found this, hope you made, made you laugh. He gives uh, Luther a signal watch, just like Jimmy, but it's got a different frequency. And there's one scene when some other gangsters are angry at Lex uh, for uh, reneging on being evil. They throw a grenade at him and he hits the watch and like instantaneously <laughs> superman's there i mean yeah. i mean that they threw that thing with such speed it was like 6 feet away from him all of a sudden superman appears and saves him from this grenade from the other gangsters but it's all a fake it's all a fake out uh, somehow super uh, superman to protect luther from the other uh, gangsters 
builds like a space science lab for him. And he can do his scientific experiments up there. Somehow Luther kidnaps uh, the, uh, the, the Superman family, Perry White, Lois, and Jimmy, brings them up there. And he makes them watch how he poisons Superman to death with kryptonite radiation. And even as a child, I thought that was pretty gruesome. That was pretty gruesome. Like you said, I was waiting. Like, how's he going to get out of this? You know, maybe it's a robot that's really trapped in that, that slab. Um, that, even to this day, I still feel bad when I read that. It just seemed like very, very, very gruesome the way he killed him uh, in front of his friends when they couldn't do anything. It seemed so evil and vindictive and despicable. Uh but then to keep going, Supergirl was the secret, uh, the secret weapon or the, the emergency weapon. Supergirl, basically, Luther had, was totally ignorant of her presence, so she saves the day, right? They take Luther down to uh, Kendor, uh, put him on trial, right? Which the Earthlings can watch and via he, Kandorian uh, link-up, which made me laugh yeah, as well. Now, I, well, I'm going to surprise you. There was, there was, I got two big points I want to bring up. They explicitly stated this in the story that this was just like Adolf Eichmann, right? And at the very time Siegel was writing this, Adolf Eichmann, who was uh, one of the architects of the Holocaust and was did all the logistics to move uh, the Jewish population to extermination places. He was on trial in Jerusalem and Israel really, really, really uh, communicated this to the world. So every day there were videotapes that were flown from Jerusalem back to the United States. And this was broadcast in the U S so this was broadcast on multiple TV stations at the very time Jerry Siegel was writing this story. And I even saw, I, I checked it on Wikipedia. There were certain pictures of Adolf Eichmann in trial, surrounded by a bullet, bulletproof glass booth. Luther was likewise in a bulletproof glass booth in Kendor. So there were parallels. I could really see how it influenced uh, Siegel. Um, the last two points I want to make, and I'm sorry to dominate this. But let me get these out and then, then, but the thing I found so powerful was Luther figured he'd do the same ploy to escape uh, uh, punishment. Hey, I'll make, I'll make Endor big. I'll let you guys get back to your normal size. I was so impressed with the honor and the principles of the Kendorians where they chose justice over self-interest. I thought that was a powerful, powerful lesson. But the other thing, and Anthony, this, this, you stimulated this only by going back to these stories and syncing up the writers and the artists. I got to wonder, Jerry Siegel created Superman. How did he feel about writing this story where he destroys his own creation? I would, that really, uh, that's a huge question mark in my mind. I mean, like, what was it, uh, 24 years earlier? He created this character, and as you said, he was a champion of the oppressed. I really wonder what was going through Siegel's mind. Now, clearly, the, the trials in Jerusalem 
Jerusalem, because they explicitly state Eichmann by name. That must have had a profound effect on Siegel. But I also wonder what was going through his mind as he was killing his own creation. So thank you for letting me rant. No, not a rant at all. And I, I appreciate getting your insight. And that's a great question about Siegel. It's funny because in, in Paul Kupperberg's introduction to the collected edition for Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, the final pre-crisis Superman story, he talks about how, you know, when Julius Schwartz was trying to find a writer for that two-part story, the first person he went to was Jerry Siegel. And the idea was, hey, you wrote the first Superman story. Do you want to write the last one? And Siegel was, according to, to the story, Siegel was keen to do it, but there were legal issues. And, you know, we're all familiar with the legal battles that Siegel and Schuster had with DC over, uh, you know, ownership and, and uh, compensation for the character and credit. Uh, so ultimately he wasn't able to do it, but you know, and it's funny cause I mean, I love whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Yeah. I wonder what it would have looked like had Jerry Siegel written it. I wonder if it would have echoed this, you know, 19, you know, uh, 61 story at all. I don't know, but that's a great question. I wonder if anyone ever asked him that and if that's <laughs> recorded somewhere, cause it would be fascinating to know. I, I mean, I, I would echo everything you said. I think for me, the things that stood out. The Kurt Swan art in particular, and I enjoyed his art in, in all of these issues that he did, but that one in particular, and I read it on my iPad and it was just bright and crisp and clean and it just, man, it held up. It was so beautiful. Uh, but beyond that, you know, it, it it's labeled as an imaginary story. So you figure, well, anything can happen. At the same time, and as we've been saying throughout this whole episode over the past two hours, it's like these were very innocent child-friendly stories so as i'm reading this i i was like well there's no way he can remain dead like you said either it'll turn out to be a robot or they'll find some way to revive him or he knew luther would betray him and he was only pretending to be dead like there has to be something and you know i remember you know i'm keeping track of the pages as i'm scrolling through and i remember thinking to myself like not much time left they're if they're gonna do this <laughs> they better do this soon he better get off that slab fast. And he stays dead. And, you know, to your point, it is it is a major downer. I mean, Superman doesn't go out in a blaze of glory. He he gets, I mean, he's a sucker, basically. I mean, he falls for Luther's ruse. You know, Luther, we have page after page of Luther, again, you know, curing cancer, curing these diseases, proclaiming to be on the straight and narrow, you know, getting that signal watch, like you said. I mean, he and Superman are 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 friends uh, effectively and superman builds the laboratory for him to protect him you know where he can yeah really... he's always building a lab for for lex <laughs> it's a it is actually a really nice um it is a kind of a nice compliment to that superboy story we just talked about but yeah i mean and then ultimately superman just gets tricked strapped to a table and and murdered with kryptonite and that's it, it my takeaway from the story is that this was a pretty good Lex story. It was a pretty good Luther story. Not a great Superman story. You know, and as far as uh, endings of the character, I would not rank this one very highly. It, it's it's funny because when I had uh, our mutual friend Mike on the show, you know, he was on the Golden Age episode, but he was also on the previous episode. Uh, and in that, a big piece of that episode was was a discussion of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. And I said in that episode, I was like, you know, it's surprising, you know, for a character who's been around for as many decades as Superman, there aren't a ton of quote-unquote final Superman stories. 
And I said, you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll encounter a few, you know, I know with the imaginary stories in particular, you know, I'll encounter a few when I do my Silver Age read in particular. And sure enough, that proved true. But yeah, I would not rank this one very highly. And even as a Luther story, I guess I'm kind of, I'm kind of mixed on this because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, it feels pretty in character that he was evil all along and this was all a plot. But part of me would have loved to see the story where he actually did turn over a new leaf and actually did repair that friendship with Superman that they once had. I think that would have been really interesting, but uh, obviously not the path they chose. But yeah, that was a standout story for sure. Yeah, the, even 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 today, it's. I just feel very depressed at the end of it. I just feel depressed. It was morose. Like you said, Superman's decency, his willingness to take the high road and try to forgive the sins of the past and become friends for the future, he was deceived and beyond that, murdered. And But I also, as a child, I remember thinking how, how disgusting and gruesome it must have been for Perry and Lois and Jimmy to watch this. And really, Superman was just a subject in the, in, in, in the thing. But again, what really resonated with me, even when I was a child, was the, the principles of the Kryptonian, the Kandorian population, where they, they chose justice over the thing that would have given them freedom. I was just impressed with that. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, I have to say, you're right, and that was a perfectly fitting end for Luther, I think, that... His plan backfired, right? The ploy that got him his his freedom in the first place, that enabled him to enact his ultimate revenge on Superman, ultimately backfires with the Kandorians. And he ends up in the Phantom Zone. So it was really all for nothing. And so I think from as far as the end of Luther, I think it is actually a pretty a pretty fitting uh, and very poetic end for him. So I, I thought that was effective. Uh, I want to jump to, yeah. and I know I'm, I know because we've been going for two hours now, and and um, we can circle back to Superman under the red sun if you like, but I really want to make sure we get to Superman red and Superman blue. And before that, one one thing that I want to say, and and this really can be, and it actually will be in the future, its own episode. So I won't go, I won't go crazy with this now. But I mentioned earlier about how this Silver Age reading assignment has given me a newfound appreciation for a lot of. Uh, you know, stories, modern stories that I had previously read, but didn't really know, I guess, the foundation for them. And in much the same way uh, that we're getting a little bit of a theme that's emerging here on these episodes, in much the same way as my Golden Age reading uh, helped me appreciate what Grant Morrison was doing with his New 52 run on Action Comics, so too has my Silver Age reading given me a whole new perspective on All-Star Superman, Grant Morrison's 12-issue epic that's widely regarded as, as one of the best quintessential Superman stories that of the two of us, only one of us has read, <laughs> which, which is shocking to me, which is shocking to me, Rich, because now having read all these Silver Age stories, and I went back I, over last night and today, I, I didn't have a ton of time, but I, I fit it in, I reread All-Star Superman in the context of these Silver Age stories and it was like, oh my God, he was writing, or actually Morrison now identifies as they, them. So they were writing Silver Age Superman 
And, you know, we talk about final Superman stories. The whole premise of that is that Superman is dying from, uh, from sun solar radiation poisoning. And so he's getting all of his affairs in order. And, and it's, it's, it's a, it's such a beautiful story that I appreciate in, in a whole new way now, because so many of the elements that we're talking about here, like the bottle city, like the character Van Z, like the robots, the fortress with the crazy experiments and the shrines and the trophy room and the intergalactic zoo, the bizarros and the mad scientist Lex and the lowest and who even does lowest, the, lowest getting powers, the lowest getting powers, the lowest not knowing the secret identity. All of it is straight from the Silver Age. And man, I I really came around because it's not that I ever disliked All Star Superman, but. Here's the issue that I always had with it, I guess, is that it does play into that version of the character that is more godlike and more removed from humanity. And that never really resonated with me. And when it came out, as much as the all-star line and all-star Superman in particular, you know, it was billed as an alternate take on the character. And I, I recognize that and I appreciate that. At the same time, I was so used to the version of Superman I had been reading from the 90s into the early 2000s that when... I read that All-Star Superman iteration. It just, it was, to me, it felt so disconnected from the version of the character I knew and the dynamics I was familiar with. And as much as I could appreciate the story, and I, I know people loved it, it, it didn't really grab me the way it did a lot of other people. But I, I really, I've really come around on it. And it's, it's the sort of thing where, I know you're not a fan of the artist, Frank Quitely, but... If if you can if you can get past that, and honestly, I love his art, and I think he, he does some really interesting stuff in there. I mean, even if you don't like his particular style, he he tells a story really well visually. But um, you know, even art aside, if, as someone who is a fan and has this love for Silver Age Superman, I mean, All Star is just an ode is an ode to Silver Age Superman, in much the same way as Morrison's New Fifty Two run was an ode to Golden Age. So. I'm just putting that out there for you. And and if you get to it, you get to it. If not, I understand. But I just want to share that my perspective on that story totally changed after reading all these Silver Age stories. Because I really, I just, I got, I finally got what Morrison was doing. Like the version of the character he was really playing with, they were playing with. Interesting. Uh, uh, before we move to the next issue that we want to analyze, and and I truly don't think we're going to get to it tonight, but I read a number of Luther stories because I had never read them before. And aside from 149, where he is evil incarnate, later in time, other writers really took steps to show him in a, in a different light, especially the whole thing with uh, him being on you know, the duel between Superman and Luther. They went to the planet Lexor, a red sun planet. And they cultivated that, this own backstory there. The, these people at one time were a super advanced civilization. They were dependent on machines. They forgot how to maintain the machines. And then they were like really, really uh, desperate for help. Uh, the planet was um, in desperate need of water. Luther becomes a hero on that planet. So there were a number of stories that took place uh, where the writers evolved and really gave 
heroic attribute point in time we might want to start dissecting some of those other those other silver age luther stories just to show how they kind of let the character evolve into different venues yeah i mean like i said i definitely plan to spend more time on lex and lois and jimmy uh in the future they'll get spotlight episodes where we really take a look at how they changed over time um, I love how I put that whole thing out there about all-star Superman and how you should read it and how it, how it evokes the version of the character <laughs> you love. And you just said, interesting. And you said something completely different. That's fine though. That's fine. I, uh, Anthony, yeah. are you surprised? No, I'm are, not. are you surprised? I'm not. It's, I mean, it's, it's all right, <laughs> but it just, um, you know, I guess the, the last thing I'll say about it is I think what's cool about it is that. Again, it takes this version of the character, but it tells a story through a modern, not even so much a modern, more of a timeless, but we'll say a modern lens with modern storytelling sensibility. So, you know, as we are looking back on these Silver Age stories, it's like, yeah, the way the stories were told was, you know, it was a little tough to kind of, you know, fully get engrossed in now as adults in 2021. But so to kind of take that version of the characters and tell a story with them using all of the tools at a creator's disposal in, in the modern era, I think made, made for something really interesting, but the let yeah, Anthony, yeah. there's no doubt in my mind that all-star Superman is, I think it was the editing. That's why it's such a success. Well, we know the, the well we know the assistant editor Brandon Montclair, so I'm sure it was. Did you? That's watch, exactly it. Did you watch the movie, the animated movie? No, I, well, uh, no. Sorry, I didn't even I didn't even know there was one. So. Well, there you go. How about this? Why don't you watch the animated movie? It'll take <laughs> honestly, it'll take an hour and ten minutes of your life. You don't have to deal with the art that you don't like, and you'll get the story. So I'm just going to put that out there. But anyway, okay, we'll okay. talk more, on, you know, uh, in the future on the show, we'll talk more about Morrison and All-Star in particular, but I really came around on that. Uh, so the, the last one that I really want to make sure we hit on is uh, the 1963 story from Superman 162, the amazing story of Superman Red and Superman Blue, and uh, written by Leo Dorfman. And this was another imaginary story and another quote-unquote final Superman story, but with a much happier outcome but this is the, oh my God, there's so much going on in this story. And from a psychological perspective, I don't think any of this was intentional, but it's like really fascinating. I, I think what it says about the character of Superman, the basic premise, it starts off with, and this, going back to things that make me laugh, the Kandorians take Superman to task. Oh my God. They're like, hey. <laughs> You're a failure. You You're failed. a failure. You know? Like you failed. You promised. We're going to give you six months. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, you better don't get your act together. Yeah. And it's like, if yeah. you don't get us out of this bottle, we're going to, we're going to send someone from the bottle to replace you. Um, and yeah. so he conducts this experiment on himself using the, the rainbow of kryptonite, right. To enhance his intelligence. But it also has the unintended, the unintended byproduct of splitting him into two into two people. And, you know, going back to Adventures of Superman, there was that episode we talked about where uh, Superman has to be in two places at once and he splits himself in half. Uh, this, yes, yes. You know, this again, a different version of that, but, you know, but interesting to see it play out again. And so, you know, one of them is in a blue costume and one is in a red costume, hence Superman red and Superman blue. And they set about, you know, basically 
taking care of everything. They're able to solve every problem on that on their to do list. What what yeah. were, what were uh, some of the other things that uh, that they were able to accomplish? Well, let's. How should I say it? Why don't we try to do the things that they didn't accomplish? There's nothing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, if I may. Yeah. If I may, if I may, uh, this story floored me. This story floored me. Now, interesting, Anthony, I really only read it for this discussion. I remember as a child glancing through it. Um, but again, for some of those Silver Age, they're pretty dense. You've got to commit to reading these. There's so much exposition. But yeah, like really the first two pages, I mean, they really, really bitch him out. Like, you know, they, they hey, you got to come to this meeting. They get on the view screen. You have failed at everything you've done. You failed at everything. We're giving you six months. If you don't, if you don't get your act together, we're going to replace you. So he, you know, he and Supergirl, but I think his assignments, I mean, are, they're pretty broad. I mean, like uh, restore Kendor to its normal size. Develop a, uh, an antidote or uh, a cure for kryptonite poisoning. And no pressure here. Wipe out all crime and evil. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, and then. Yeah. Like, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. So, uh, so like, you know, he goes in, he goes in this, you know, once again, the booth, like the other, the booth with the last days of, uh, he goes in there and he puts that goofy uh, thing on with all the colors of kryptonite. And Supergirl kind of goes, hey, I should do it. And he goes, no, I've got to do it. They gave me the assignment. And the thing is, the, apparently he should increase his intellectual brain power by a hundredfold, exponentially. But there's some, like you said, it's super painful. He starts screaming. The booth explodes, and he split into the two characters. But I will tell you... Um, even as a child, I didn't like this story. It moved too fast. It created an absolute utopia. I mean, I, I, obviously, you can. Uh, my tone, I'm shouting. Uh, I mean, like, uh, he comes up with some, uh, uh, you know, cure for all, all disease. I mean, he drops a couple of drops in the Mississippi River. Next panel, the blind people are taking their glasses off. It's the blind are seeing. Cripples are walking, right? That's done, right? Uh, what cracked me up reading this was the, the hypno-satellites that they put in all around the Earth mm -hmm. that basically, basically, you know, they give Zatanna a hard time in, uh, in Justice League. But it plays with everybody's brains. It wipes out crime and evil, right? Uh, it has an even far more reaching effect because apparently it can even go into the, the phantom zone and wipe out <laughs> crime and evil there. Um, so the whole thing with the, the anti-crime hypno rays and satellites, the, you know, an afternoon's work, they, they cure all disease. Uh, they restore Condor to its normal size. And then surprisingly, what I didn't get was the, the Kondorians go, you know what? We don't want superpowers. Take us to a red sun universe. Now, what I don't understand is they had everything they wanted. They, they were on a, a normal planet. They were normal sized. They could rebuild their culture. They rebuilt the jewel mountains. And then they decide, you know what? We don't want to be superpowered. 
take us to a red sun universe. And then even Supergirl goes, you know what? I really don't care for Earth anymore. I'm going to go live uh, live uh, with them in that planet. And then one other thing I didn't like, and I'm sorry to dominate this. I'll, I'll try to, I'll turn it back over to you in a moment. What cracked me up was kind of the goofy stuff. Uh, Mixlix Pidlick comes in and he's cured. Uh, and then the other thing that, that kind of I thought was just too much too fast was um, the love, the love. Like, you know, they had some goofy thing where, hey, let's, let's erect some um, big magnetic uh, uh, symbols of LL, right? And it'll determine which of us gets to go first with our true love, right? Now, very fortunately, uh, how am I doing this right? Superman Blue loved Lana. And Superman Red loved Lois. The other thing that floored me was, you know, hey, uh, they're going to have a double wedding and they go to Jimmy, be our best man. And hey, let's make it a triple wedding. Why don't you and Lucy you know, tie the knot with us too? So they have this triple wedding. Uh, and then um, one of the Superman, you know, Superman Red decides, I really don't like it here. I want to go back to Kendor or go back to Krypton. So they did separate things. I thought a more modern modern writer could have really done something if they had harbored, if they both loved Lois and there was rivalry or friction. Here they made it this perfect, like, well, you know what? I've always loved Lana. I've always loved Lois. No harm, no foul. Uh, I, I will say I thought it moved far too fast. They created an absolute utopia in 23 pages. Lucy Lane had the best line in the whole thing. Like at the very last, Jimmy says something optimistic and Lucy's going, Hmm, I wonder. So uh, sorry yeah. for my rant. No, not at all. Yeah. Again, this, I really did find this fascinating. The, what I was going to say before, something that I, I, that popped into my head when you were talking about the list, right? His list of things to do. Yeah. Three, a, a mutual friend of ours, Brian O'Day, you know, who we met through our local comic shop. Uh, I, I think he's since abandoned this quest, but, you know, for years he had this list of comics that he wanted to own. Uh, and, like, classic key issues. And he had them all written out. It was a, a handwritten piece of paper. And, it you know, it was like Amazing Fantasy 15, Amazing Spider-Man 1, Amazing Spider-Man 2. And I remember, <laughs> I remember us saying to him, like, I don't know if you need to write those down. Like you'll probably know if like when you have amazing fantasy 15 and we love or, Brian. Or fantastic Four one. Yeah. There were certain things on that list where it's like, yeah, I don't know that you need to really write that. Like you'll know. And it's the same thing here. It's like, and again, I know it's just, a, you know, a, a convention of the story, but it's like, do you really need to write down wipe out crime? That's your whole thing. But so the, the, yeah. the fact and, that it was actually written out was, was very humorous to me. I'm glad you brought that up because I do remember uh, one of the early panels where the two supermen like go into a room and they put it on a whiteboard, you know, priorities, <laughs> restore candor, cure kryptonite poisoning, uh, eradicate crime. Yeah. Um, and as far as, as far as aspects that, that could have been mined for more drama, when Electric Superman was split into red and blue in the 90s, now I have not gone back and reread these stories, so someone could 
could fill me in or, or refresh my memory. But I think they did play with that a little bit more because at the time, Lois and Clark were married and now all of a sudden there were two. And I forget offhand exactly how they handled that. I think like they, like both Clarks slept on the couch. It was something like that. But, uh, but they did, they did kind of explore that a little bit. The other thing where it really lost me was the hypno anti-evil Ray. Um, Because to your point, right, you were referring to, when you mentioned Zatanna, you're referring to uh, the Identity Crisis storyline by Brad Brad Meltzer, right, where we find out that Zatanna had been, and and certain members of the Justice League had been mind-wiping villains over the years, and, you know, it raised all these ethical questions. And, you know, that's not something that's dealt with here at all that would have been really interesting you know, debate to have within the pages of the comic. Interestingly enough, though, going back to the Supergirl TV show, the a major plot line last season, was it last season or two seasons ago? I, I'm losing track at this point. But Lena Luther, sister of Lex, uh, she wanted to launch this, uh, basically the same type of device that would uh, basically fix everyone. And they would, it was called non nocere. It was like do no harm. And so the idea was that anyone um, affected by this, like, wouldn't wouldn't be able to to harm anyone else, would not be able to, you know, commit any evil. So that idea got got a modern spin on it. And in that case, they really did get into the ethical implications of it. Uh, that's not something that's explored here. And you know, I that doesn't feel very Superman like to me to like have this basically mind control ray. Uh, that's going to make it, that's going to eliminate crime. So that was a tough pill to swallow. But the, 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 my, I don't know, my biggest takeaway, and when I go back to the psychology of this, it's actually kind of, kind of heartbreaking, I think. And, and it actually really did make me sad. This idea, and I don't know that this was the intention, but I, I read this story and you, you, you laid it out beautifully, right? That, uh, you know, each Superman, you know, picks a different love, right? One picks Lana, one picks Lois, one picks living powerless on New Krypton, one picks living with powers on Earth, right? And they both do seem happy enough. Now, to your point, Lucy does raise the question at the end of like, well, which one's happier? Are they both happy? Will they remain happy? You know, and that was kind of an interesting note to end on. But I'm reading that and I thought to myself like, what does this say about the character? Like, is he so conflicted, so torn between two women, two loves, two homes, two ways of life, two cultures, two cultures that the only way he can achieve happiness is literally <laughs> to be split in yeah. two. Split. And so for the character we read throughout the Silver Age, who's not split in two, how tortured must this person be? it really actually kind of made me sad. And, you know, again, going back to the versions of the character I like, I think that that struggle to sort of reconcile the two disparate parts of himself, I think that's that's a key part of the character, but you want to see him achieve that reconciliation between human and Kryptonian. And I don't know, just reading this story, it's like, oh, like, in this version, and this was my takeaway, I'm not, I don't know that this was the intention, it probably wasn't, but my, my reading it, I was just like, man, like, this is the only way, like, how tortured must he be? That's fascinating. And uh, Anthony, until you posed that question, only once or twice, only once or twice did I ever see hints of that. 
and I, I'll make this fast. I got to remember where it was. I remember when Jack Kirby came to DC in the early seventies in one of the Jimmy Olsen uh, issues, he wrote, uh, I think a story, I think it was titled Superman in super town. And it must've been new Genesis, but, but, but the, the, the story was kind of like all of a sudden Superman goes, Hey, you know what? I could be at, I could be at home here. I'm not different. Everyone had powers, you know. I could be part of this society. And I really I really resented that because my view was the Superman I know would have always been responsible. You know, I have an obligation to protect to protect people the way uh Jonathan and Martha raised him. So I would I would never see him abandon his responsibilities, his self-imposed desire to protect and help. But it was a fascinating thought. Like I, that was the first time I was about 14 or 15. I thought, hey, that's pretty intriguing. Does he aspire to live with others who have superpowers and function in that way? You raise a superb question. I mean, they could have played up the conflictedness a little bit more. Like, which culture am I more comfortable in? Um, almost a man of two worlds sort of thing. Yeah, I, again, I just feel like psychologically, it's there's there's a lot to mine there. Uh, I, again, I don't think that was the mandate of this story, but it, it did raise the thought and the question for me. So I think that brings us to the end of our of our Silver Age discussion. We hit just about everything uh, that, that we committed to for this list. Um, we are doing an episode of Digging Deeper, the Patreon-exclusive companion podcast to this show, uh, where we'll be talking about Superman 156, The Last Days of Superman, uh, an Edmund Hamilton, Kurt Swan story. So uh, if you want to hear us talk about another Silver Age story in a little bit more depth, uh, make sure you sign up for the Patreon and listen to the new episode of Digging Deeper, uh, which will be out two days after today. Uh, Rich, you know, you and I have been planning this for a long time. And, you know, from my earliest planning of this podcast, I knew when we got to Silver Age, uh, you know, this, this would be your episode. Um, is there anything else that, that you want to say about Silver Age Superman as we, as we wrap up here? No, I thank you for the opportunity to explore this and, and do kind of the, a critical review. It, it you know, I, I said at the outset, certain parts of this, uh, diminished my fondness for the past but boy i still love the character i'll always love the character for kind of the characteristics you know the the thoughtfulness the love the protection the courage um so you know it's very got a very fond place in my heart so i thank you for the opportunity to do this analysis and to take these things uh look at them in more detail and kind of peel back the layers of the character and the and the stories um so thank you no my pleasure uh there's no one else i I would have thought to have on this flight here than than you my friend and you know i guess to sort of wrap up on my end you know overall I enjoyed this experience. I know in the last episode, I mean, I was really hot on the the early Golden Age Superman, and I do plan to go back and read more of those Golden Age stories uh, down the line. I, I I might I might do something similar with with Silver Age Superman. Um, I did find them interesting. I did find them worthwhile. It was cool to see the origins of so many aspects of the character that I know. That was really the sort of the the, the highlight for me. 
Um, but beyond that, yeah, I, I overall found it hard to connect with this version of Superman and this more, uh, again, aloof, removed uh, iteration of the character. But I appreciate what this added to the mythology and and the groundwork it laid and, and the stories that it inspired that, that have meant a lot to me. So uh, thank you for being my guide on this, Rich, and, and for curating this list and everything and having this conversation. And I want to thank our audience for continuing along with us. We'll be back in two weeks with a look at the Bronze Age Superman. Uh, so make sure you come back for that. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. Digging for Kryptonite is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Greg Shegel, music by Basic Printer. Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group. Follow Digging for Kryptonite on Instagram and Twitter and visit flatsquirrelproductions.com to explore more of my film and podcast projects. <laughs>